Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Okay, welcome back to the Lights Out Podcast. Thanks for joining. Special guest today. Very excited about this one. Guy's been around for a long time. A lot of fights, almost all of them at the highest level. Unbelievable how high, just all high-level fights. You don't see that very often. Usually people have to take a long time to get there. This guy, you know, lightning path right there. Been killing ever since. Corey Anderson. Corey, how the hell you doing, man? I'm doing good, Chris. How about yourself? Man, I'm uh, living the dream right now. So, like I said, I've been fortunate lately. I've uh, been able to be in the gym to see uh, where you've been at, uh, see a little bit of your work ethic and how hard you do things. And not only do things hard, but being smart about things. Um, it, it's cool to have you in there, man. So, thank you. Um, what we're going to have do is, uh, as Mike uh, tends to go through people's career, very with the fine-tooth comb. So, He's probably found out a lot about you, and uh, he he just wants to know a lot of the little intricate things. So, Mike, go ahead and take this thing off. All right. So, Corey, how old were you when you started wrestling? Started wrestling in third grade. All right. Are, are you one of those guys that got a lot of street fights, or were you always pretty cool? I was always a good kid. You know, I only wrestled because my brother did I was uh, the youngest of four. For everything my older brother did, I won. So, he started playing football. I played football. Play basketball, baseball. I played basketball, baseball. When he found wrestling, I found wrestling. So you know, I just stuck with it after that. All right. So you went. You went to Rockford. Was it? Was it Hanega? How do you say? <laughs> Hanamiga. Hanamiga. Okay. Yes. <laughs> that one. I ain't never heard that. <laughs> Man, bro, I ain't never even read that before. So I mean, I didn't even. Um. All right. So you took third in state. Am I correct? Your senior year. Um, freestyle state. I never made it to actual folk style state. Okay. And, and you wrestled Eric Redkey. Yep. Yep. That was one of the guys I wrestled. Okay. So your, your high school career, like if you look at you, what, what you're doing in mixed martial arts and how just wrestling dominant you are, where do you think you peaked wrestling wise? Because it certainly wasn't in high school. Oh no, I sucked in high school. I didn't win my first wrestling match until I was a sophomore in high school. Um... I would say I peaked, what, 2008, 2009, which is the person who brought the best out of me is here in Indiana, which is why I moved to Indiana in the first place. You know, um, a guy, my wrestling coach, he uh, uh, took over as head coach my sophomore year in college. And, uh, yeah, I was just a fat, lazy kid. I just enjoyed wrestling, but I didn't have the grind and the work ethic I have now. So I met this guy. He just saw me one day in practice and grabbed me up to practice and said, uh, Dude, you can be good. And I know you can be good. I'll make sure of it. So I didn't really peak until after I met him. All right. You go to junior college, Lincoln Junior College, obviously very well known here in the Midwest. Decent wrestling program. You're an All-American. You head over to Newberry College where you're 14 and 6. Did you have issues adjusting there to the levels of wrestling? Oh, no. I didn't have issues wrestling to, to the adjustment of wrestling and the adjustment of the coach. The coach and I just, we never seen how to It was pretty much every match. It was a, before I was up on the mat, we were fighting. That's the reason why I was only there for a year. It was just a whole bad ordeal. It just, it went bad fast. Do you want me to go into detail on that? Or we gonna Man, going? bro. <laughs> you never talked about it. Like, you yeah, hear you know, like little snippets. 
Okay, well, uh, the guy's, guy's name was Jason Vallett. You know, um, I usually don't air dirty laundry or put names out, but it's one guy I don't mind putting out there just to keep people away from. Uh, it was at the time I left junior college, you know, as a young kid, you're trying to look to go where you're going to get the most money. You know, oh, who's going to give me the most money? I had full ride offers, man. All these other good things that just sounded great. Uh, NC, North Carolina, Chapel Hills, and lots of great party schools, all kinds of different things to entice you. And then uh, Valet came along. And I had never really met him. I was always talking in email and text and everything he pitched, it sounded good. And like, you know, you come here, I give you a full ride. We're the number two country in the uh, D2. You come here, you can wrestle, you'd be great, blah, blah, blah. But like, soon as I signed an NLI, and I remember when I got there, my parents left for orientation. And he said, I thought he was joking. He was like, yeah, you know, you're like mine now, right? And I'm like, I own you pretty much now. Like, I'm I'm your mom and dad now. You know, I thought another, I thought he was just joking. And then uh, in wrestling practice, I beat the starting heavyweight up pretty bad. I beat all the other heavyweights up. And he just comes over to me and he said, just so you know, you'll never wrestle for me. You'll never start unless you go down to 197. I was like, what? Like, I'm a heavyweight. Why do I go 197? Like, you'll never start for me unless you go to 197. So he would make me and this guy wrestle off, and I will beat the guy every time. But still not starting. And the kid beat me one match, one match in the actual tournament, even by ride time. Like, oh, well, now he beat you, so now we can't say anything. Without the whole year, he would, like, make me come to practice and wrestle this guy off, and I will beat him. I think the worst I beat him was, like, 14-2 to two once. And he was like, yep, you're still not going to start. Like, yeah, what, why do you keep making me wrestle him off? Like, what am I doing this for? And then he was suspended from the team because we were getting robbed. Like, you're suspended. Like, All right, whatever. I go back to my hope, my room, whatever, my house. I'll be drinking. I'll be doing things. I start talking to other schools, trying to get out of there. Like, it was dark. I was in a dark spot because he put that shadow over my head, you know, and it, I'm thankful for it today. And we're getting to that later on down the line. But at the time it was, I was 19 years old, you know, just barely can do anything on my own. And I'm 14, 15 hours away from home with no closest family, no friends, no nothing. So this guy was just like ruining my life. It was, I tell you all the time, such a dark spot that I'm a big motorcycle rider. And I've always told myself when I got my license, like I will never drink and ride a motorcycle. I will never drink an alcohol beverage and get on a motorcycle. Or I was out there drinking two or three, four locos with two or three more on my backpack oh. on my cross rocket and just flying around. So like I just didn't care that I was just in a very dark spot where I just I really didn't care what happened because he was pretty much manipulating me and using me as a practice partner. But every time things would go good, he'd make sure he bring me down a level. Bring me down a level just so I could never really be happy, truly happy. He was suspending me because like I was heavyweight. And the other guys that didn't have to make weight, they had weight checks every week. I'm heavyweight. I don't have a weight check. But one day I come to practice and I get on the scale. Like, what? You got a weight check. I'm a heavyweight. What are you talking about? I look on the board and he put my name on the weight check and I had to be like 243. I was 246 and suspended me from team for a week because I missed weight. Like, I'm a heavyweight. Like, I wrestled 265. Like, why nobody else got a weight check but just me? And then, like, he had a property where one of the national champs and the other guys, they lived at his house. And uh, it was a lake and hunting property. And we go out there and we would go fishing and take 22 rifles and shoot rabbits and squirrels. And one time he pulled up and pretty much the whole team is out there and he sees me like, what the f- you doing on my property? Like, I'm hanging out with the team. What are you talking about? Like, you grew in my hunting season. Get off my property. Like, yo, everybody, why are you only yelling at me? And he just kicked me off the property. Don't ever come back. I call the cops when you come back. Like, yeah, I'm like, okay. <laughs> he used to call this guy Kelly and Nuts, and you might know him. Chris, he fought. He was a uh, 
even once y'all some fighters, I don't know, episode with me. But at the time, he was fighting in Bellator. He would call him back. I got this guy. He's going to whoop your ass. You know, like, beat everybody in the wrestling room. Like, you can't beat this guy. This guy can whoop your ass. And they come back to the wrestling room, and I would just tear him up. Like, eat him up. Like, this is what you got? You call this guy in to beat me up? This dude trash. And he was like, well, you just wait. If you guys did MMA, he'd kill you in MMA. Funny story. My first fight to get into the house of the house of the fighter was Kelly and Nelson. First round, he took me down a couple times, but once I got up, I beat the brakes off of him again. And in a two-round fight, beat him unanimous decision. And I remember the first time I seen him after that, because I was coaching at Lincoln at the time, I was coming back and went to National Duels in Springfield. I remember going out to the front desk to get something from my my kids. And I look over to the right, and who was there? Jason Fowler. <laughs> I was like, yo, what up, coach? And he just looked at me, shook his head, and left. And the other coach came up like, yo, he's pissed. He hate the fact that you be killing that bad on live TV. And like, yo, forget him, dude. Like, he was, uh, to this day, it's still a song to take. I don't think I've ever forgiven him. But uh, at the same time, everything he put me through helped me progress in the life I'm living now. Where do you think that came from? I have no clue. I can't even tell you. I never asked. I didn't even finish school here. Like, I ended up going to the athletic director. Tell them what was going on. Talk to my teachers so I could take all my finals early. Once season was over, I did a couple off-season tournaments that they had to pay for to get me to just so I could meet other coaches face-to-face and, like, told them on, on the low, like, yo, when this when I'm done with this, I'm leaving Newberry. So if y'all need somebody, look me up because I'm not going to be in school anymore, so I've been looking for a place to go. And then once I finished with that, I just went to the AD, told them what was going on, and let me leave and I just couldn't go D2 again. I was able to get out of there early. I just had to go to another division. Hey, do you did you ever see him like treat anybody else like that? Or did he know had it been known to do that like in the past to anybody else or anything like that? Did he just like not like certain people or anything? I mean, he was a dick to certain kids, but those kids weren't like good. You know, it was other heavy like his other heavyweight, really big kid. He wasn't any good, so he was never really in practice. So he was a dick to him. He just wouldn't show up. It didn't matter. He didn't have a scholarship. He had to walk on. Yeah. But I don't think there was anybody else that he, like, gave a full ride to come there just to, like, abuse. And I think really the reason was I think he just wanted to make sure nobody else can pick me up as a heavyweight. I don't, I don't know. Because at the time, I was probably one of the number one heavy recruits at the time coming out of JUCO. I did so well. I was the only one eligible. And I, I don't know. It's like so many opportunities in the – the biggest regret I have is my coach, Stephen Bradley, who I'm here helping in Indiana. I remember him calling me before I made my decision. Like, just remember, Corey, this is going to be the biggest decision in your life. Do not let the money dictate what you do. He said, it's going to be a lot of offers because you're a really good heavyweight. Do not go for the money. As a kid, you know, y'all listening, coach, I hear you, I hear you. I got the phone call. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. I want to sign, a sign, full ride, my housing paid for, but let's do it. And end up being, like he said, it would be the biggest decision. If you make the wrong decision, it can be your worst decision. Chris, I, I just kind of want to point something out. There's a long list, and, and I've heard Corey kind of address this in other interviews, but he's never went this deep on what exactly took place there. It's the first time he's really laid it all out. There's many things that Corey could say that the reason, the reason, the reason, one of them being racial, has never come out of his mouth, whether it's a factor or not, it's not something he's ever addressed or said was a part of the issue. It speaks volumes of your character, man. And it's like, I, I just want to set the tone of this interview because, dude, I went through your career. You're one of the 
most real dudes that like has ever sat in front of us in one of these interviews. So you're one thing about me, I've always told my mom, like I'm an open book. She gets mad sometimes. Like, why do you you go on interview and you just say everything? Like, because I don't really have secrets, man. If somebody asks, I'm gonna tell them. Like when I got with my wife today and we went on our first date, I aired out all my own dirty laundry. Like right, <laughs> like our first time hanging out, she even said like it was red flags. Like I thought when smoke was fire, where there's smoke, there's fire. And she stayed away from me for a while. But then when we got into a relationship and those red flags I warned her of, those females trying to pop up and people would say stuff, it wasn't like a shock because I had already aired my own laundry. Yeah, I wanted to make sure like I don't have anything in the closet when it comes down to it. So. And on a different note, real quick, uh, you driving around after drinking three or four of those four locos is insane, man. I've had a one one experience with the four locos. We always make a joke about that stuff's nuts. So, <laughs> why do you like well, that's crazy? Man. <laughs> four locos do you dirty, man? I think man, thing over I had, I had drank four four locos one night and did a keg stand for like oh, twenty shit. seconds, and then was drinking vodka shots. This was in South Carolina again. Again, I just didn't care. I was just. I was living a life that's not me at all, not Corey Anderson. And I remember when I woke up, I was probably hungover for like a week and a half. I remember just standing on my couch for like a week and a half. Like I never got up. I couldn't couldn't move. Like my body, I thought I probably had alcohol poison, but I was hurting so bad. I literally sat on that couch for a week and a half. Like I was dead. Mike, do you remember that fight you put on where me and Mitrione showed up and Ed Jones and we were not in good position? Four, I was a four loco. That was a four loco that happened. That if we were a wreck, and it, my no entire business. my entire security staff and the door were frightened. And I'm like, well, they're actually professional fighters. They didn't believe it. These guys were a mess. Oh, it, we were a wreck. It was bad news, man. We, yeah, it was four loco. We had like three of those, and like it, was, it got ugly the whole night. But I, we ended up at the fights, and we were in the back. And I know people were just looking at us like, oh my, these guys are professionals. Yeah, it was ugly. I still, I think drinking for a local, like one, like half of one in the night, just chilling, you know, because that's one that can get you going fast. So I want to just get, like, take the top off and relax, like, take my mind off a of bad practice or just a bad week. I would grab me a four local and just, like, pour half of it in a cup. And I'd just be in the couch, like, oh, why are you coming in the house? I'm like this. <laughs> You're right. I'm like, yeah, I just I have me a four local. <laughs> I've never touched it since. I've never touched the four <laughs> That was one and done for me, man. It was like that's all I got for that. That's you're you're the devil. So yeah, you gotta be. You gotta have a, <laughs> a strong gut for that because to go back after your first hangover of four loco, you gotta be crazy, ballsy, or stupid. One of the two. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. bring it up to Mitrione. He'll laugh his ass off. Yeah. So so Corey, you meet Ben Askren at junior college. You take second place at nationals, forty six and five. But your MMA career, you go with Mark Fiore when you like your beginning training. You go with Mark Fiore and hit squad. Why didn't you uh, uh, stay with Aspirin? Okay, so I met Ben in my senior year at D3. Uh, this was after Newberry when I left Newberry. And I actually wasn't going to go to school after being home. It was hard having trust issues to trust any coach. And uh, this coach pulled up at my house one day while I was working for my father. And I was like, I know you got trust issues. I heard about the whole ordeal, but I want you to come with me. I got some people that I feel around us that can help you not only with your career in wrestling, but after wrestling. And, you know, one of those people was Ben Askren, Russ Davey, um, Brandon uh, Williams, the coach. There was a bunch of guys that I met there, but Ben was one of the guys that was really influential because you see MMA. And uh, I went to Rufus Sport. Literally, after I took second in the finals, I remember going to get my phone to the locker room. 
I'm crying, I'm upset. Now look at when first text has been asking, like, yo, congratulations. At the end of the day, there's only 10 or 20 people that make it to the finals. And only one in each class or 10 guys can win. You one of those top 20, man. Keep your head up. But tomorrow, if you want to, I wanted to try out for the Olympic team, the junior Olympic team. When you take a second try, I can qualify for the trials. He's like, if you want to continue to wrestle Olympic style, meet me at this address tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. Or not Monday, and we'll start wrestling again. I was like, all right, cool. So I go there, and uh, the gym was Rufus Sport. And, you know, I remember going in there, and you see Anthony Pettis in there jumping off the cage, doing kicks for Toyota Tire, doing a video. You got Eric <laughs> Pascal Cross, all these guys. I never knew who they were at the time. And they're doing this stuff. And Rufus Sport at the time was, like, a very, very big gym. This is actually where I met my wife. The first day I met my wife, she was working the front desk. And um, I remember going there. I'm thinking, like, yo, what is what is all this? Being like, I thought we was wrestling. Like, yeah, I know. I was always going to wrestle. But I want you to try it. I mean, this is your new sport. I want you to try it. If you just try it today and you don't like it, I never mention it again. But if you like it, you're more than welcome to come here and train every day. I didn't try it. I just sat there and watched. And I just remember, like, I boxed before back in junior college. But I ain't going to do this. I got home. I got out. I left. And the whole way home, it's an hour and 15-minute drive to my parents' house from Milwaukee back home. So the whole way I'm driving, I'm thinking to myself, like, yo, you a real big bitch for not trying. Like, hey, why did you give the match give it a try? What's the worst that could have happened? Like, yo, why did you take that opportunity? Like, you got to start taking opportunities, Corey. You got to stop doing it. And I remember when I get home, I tell myself, tomorrow morning, I'm getting up and going back. So I wake up at 7.30, and I jump on my motorcycle, and I fly back, and I make 9 o'clock practice. And this time, I meet the groupers at the door. Like, yeah, I came here yesterday, and I kind of chickened out, but today I want to give it a try. Like, oh, good thing you came back, because uh, it's sparring day. <laughs> like, yo, what the, I know I box bar. He's like, that's fine. Do what you do. So he gave me some shin pads and the headgear, and I did what I did. And I went out the first time with Anthony Pettis. So Anthony kept leg kicking. So I couldn't leg kick. I never took a leg kick before. Like, yo, we can't do that. Yes, you can. He's MMA, but do what you do. So I took him down. All right, <laughs> now you're taking him down, but you're too big to take Anthony down. Let's go to the other guy. So I went Ben. Ben is more scrappy wrestler, but I had a little boxing, so I hit him with the hands. He's like, all right, now you starting to get the hang up. Let's move to a heavyweight. And the heavyweight, I just fucking dominated him. I'm like, okay, there you go. Well, now you know. You can do MMA. And he said it. He was the first person said, in three fights, I can see you being in the UFC, bro. I'm just telling you. Your athleticism and your size and where you work. In three fights, you can be in the UFC. I'm like, I don't even have any fights. And I'm telling you what I see in you. I'm working with them. I'm working with them. And then Coach Bradley, Stephen Bradley, the coach here at Marion at the time, he calls me. And I was like, yo, um, I know you're not working. You just graduated college. Have a position down here at Lincoln College if you want to come down and help. I would love to have you come down and be the heavyweight coach for me. I need a heavyweight coach. And you're like the first person that came online. Coach Bradley did so much for me. I was like, bet I'm out. First day down there, Marfiori comes into the room. He brings this kid, Eddie, I can't remember his name. Eddie, but his name, his fight name was Smash Machine. Eddie Smith or Eddie something. And I meet Marfiori, but I met him when I was at Lincoln because he came down with, with Matt Hughes. Like, yeah, I heard you started fighting or whatnot. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm going to do it now because no gyms. But yeah, it is. I got a gym like 25 minutes down the road. Come down tomorrow morning. You can start training with us. Like, all right, bet. So that morning, I wake up and go down there, and I meet Mark and his whole team at Fiori MMA, and that's where I end up with those guys. Okay. So was Robbie Lawler and Matt Hughes in the gym at that time? No, they weren't there anymore. Was Neil Magny there? No. Nope. It was 
The only big name they had at the time was Justin Jacobs, who was killing it now in his second stint in the UFC. By the time he had just signed a World Series, this was like, I think that week, World Series announced that they were starting his new promotion. And he was like one of the first signees set to fight David Branch and all that. So I remember that day, like it was yesterday, when they came in there interviewing him about fighting David Branch, two guys that had been in the UFC and whatnot. Okay. Oh, so, Brian Foster. Brian Foster was another big name that was there. Was Matt Beach there? Yep, Matt Beach. I forgot he was in the UFC. I guess a few guys, Bobby Brinks. Yeah, so I guess there was a few UFC guys that was in there. So, so Corey, Corey, at this time, were you were you wanting to fight at heavyweight, or what was your plan then? Because you were oh, wrestling I, heavyweight. Oh, I was fighting at heavyweight. I didn't fight 205 until the Awesome Fighter. I had fought at heavyweight. Okay. Amateur boxing in those first three fights all the way up until the Awesome Fighter. What made you decide to, to, to drop down? You just feel like you weren't big enough, or you just feel like that, uh, you, I mean, the heavyweights were just too big, or what, 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 why'd you decide to drop down? Um, my first like, fight, I was like 230, 235, where I am right now. And uh, I wasn't shaped like I am now. I had like not a gut, but I was a little thicker. I didn't have abs, I didn't have pecs and all that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember as like, like the summertime came around, I was training in this building. It was like so hot. I got down like 217 one practice. He was mm. too high. The coach was like, yo, why don't you go 205? I was like, wow, I'm a heavyweight. I'm fast. I'm killing guys. And then one of my team was a 205er. And he was supposed to fight in like two, three weeks. And then he ended up getting hurt for the week of the fight. And he was fighting 205. At the time, I was like, you know, still 217. And he's like, Core, yo, I think you can make 205. You want to make this opportunity to go fight for this belt at 205. This is only my second fight at the time. And I was like, I mean, you think I can make the weight? Like, bro, people cut this in a day. You can make it. <laughs> so, yeah, like, you go with the boxing coach, y'all jump in the car, y'all drive to Oklahoma. And you just make weight when you get there. But on the way there, I was like, all right, we'll just make it a catch weight. 212. Can you make 212? Yeah, I can make 212. I'm like 213 right now. So I got 212. And dude was the 205 champ in Oklahoma, Myron Dennis. And I went out there and I remember beating him. Unanimous decision, five rounds. I took him down like 15 times in the fight and blah, blah. And I didn't win the belt because of the catch weight. But the, uh, the promoter, Dale Cook, ended up sending me the belt later on, like, uh, a year or so later, after I did the Ultimate Fighter, he sent me the belt. Like, you beat the champ. You deserve it. You beat him pretty good. And I got the belt at my house in Jersey where I trained at. And it was pretty cool. And after that, I had one more fight. Again, heavyweight. Let me let me rewind just a little bit because Myron Dennis was, was – dude, it was friggin' insane. I think Dale Apollo was the promoter there. Um, but you actually started with Duke Rupus's promotion with J.R. Briones. Um, yeah. You had a canceled bout prior to that, but Jared Bri- Brione, super chalk, um, trains with Reese Shaner. Your first fight, did you realize that your entire life would change and this would be the direction it went in? No. To be honest, that was actually, it was my first legit fight. I had a fight before that, more like a smoker. It was supposed to be my pro debut for Capital City Cage was in Springfield. And, uh, the lady, I can't remember, Nancy something, Illinois promoter or the Nancy Ilg. Whatever her name is, the commission of Illinois, she was just doing everything she can to make sure I couldn't get my license to go pro right away. Go pro right away. Duke wrote a letter, everybody was like, yo, this guy can do it. And then the opponent I was supposed to fight showed up by his blood work ring. But I ain't any of his medical. So like, well, now you can't fight. And there's this other kid there, heavyweight. And he's like, Oh, I want to fight. I'm supposed to make my pro debut in a little bit. How about we fight? Like, all right, y'all can do an exhibition. 
I ended up knocking him on like nine seconds, so they didn't put it on my record. <laughs> it, was a, it, was a, it was a big ordeal because the kid tried to sue the, the uh, commissioner because they didn't know I was such a good wrestler. And I just went out and blast double him, just hit him with, stood up right over, just started jab across him in the face and put him on in nine seconds. And the team was mad. <laughs> so they cut that off my record. <laughs> they made an exhibition. I got paid still, but it ended up going down as an exhibition because. All the ordeal that came out after. But yeah. So, Debrionis, you're Myron Dennis, who obviously is a standout wrestler. You, you beat him. He was seven and two at the time, and you were one and oh. You didn't care who you were fighting. No, I really didn't. I mean, that's the same way now. Like, it was the same way in the UFC when I got there. I didn't care until I understood the politics and how it worked. I didn't care who I fought. Like, I just wanted to fight everybody just to prove I was the best. Like, I knew I could beat anybody just like I do now. I just, Believe it. The way I work, like Chris said, the way I work, my work ethic and everything I do, I put everything into it. I did it before I even started. I remember looking at myself in the bathroom. I'm like, we're going to do this. We're going to do this all out. And nobody going to touch us. And we did it. And uh, I remember when they told me, to be honest, when I said I'm going to take that fight, I didn't know who I was fighting. I didn't know how many rounds. I didn't know if I was getting paid or not. When they talking to me, it's like, yo, you can make to a father. All right, let's go. Let's jump in the car and let's go. Went to my house, grabbed my stuff, and we was gone. I didn't know who my opponent was. I didn't know it was the main event. I didn't know what it was until we got there. When I got to the hotel, like, yo, hurry up. You got the press conference. Like, press conference for what? Like, you the main event. Like, what? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you fighting my Iron Future Tennis. It's like a big guy in Oklahoma. He's like, the next big thing to go to the UFC is like, oh, we'll shit. see. Like, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> like, I guess. Like, I know nothing was going on. And me and my boxing coach would go up there on the thing. And he's like, yo, of course, what's your plan? This and this. Like, I'm just going to go out there and do what I do. I'm a wrestler. You got any other words? Like, nah. And that was it for me. And he was doing all this talking. He has a reason why I'm in the future, such and such, whatever. And I just remember going to the bar, and it was me and my coach, no fans on our side. I remember walking out, and everybody booed me. And then when it was all over, said and done, it was crazy how many fans was like, yo, you are the future, man. You are so cool. You can't hear this man with this dude. It was, to me, it was nothing. I didn't know how good he was. It was just another. Another fight for me, just another victim on the record. That was it. Hey man, so, do you like it? Do you like it when people uh boo you? Does that give you energy, man? I know sometimes, man, there's nothing better than being the spoiler. When you go in there and beat somebody in their hometown, you hear crickets afterwards. I mean, that's one of the best feelings of all time, in my opinion. Being booed, I love it. I, love, I hate being the favorite. I hate <laughs> being the favorite. I love being the underdog because I have nothing oh, yeah. to like when you're the favorite, it's like everybody expects you to win. And it's like you have yeah. nothing to gain from that. When I'm the underdog and everybody doubted me, and my favorite thing, I said when I got to the Bellator, they said, well, what do you plan on coming here? Because I plan on coming here, grinding, pounding, and shushing the crowd every time. And all four fights, it's been, I've been booed coming out when there was no fans. I was the underdog, and now we got fans. Ryan Bader, Nimkov. Nimkov, they cheered for me because the Russian-Ukraine thing. But the underdogs and all the betting people said there was no way Corey Anderson can beat Nimkov. He can't even come close. Granted, it was a no contest. When it was all over and said and done, and like the change of tones and everybody's faces, everybody that talked to me after was like, bro, we did not think you could do that. It's crazy. And that's just, I just, this is it. I ain't got, I don't got to say much no more. I let my actions speak for me. I don't do fight interviews anymore. I don't do fight media since I got in Bellator. I stopped with it because I realized it's just a headache. So I don't have anything to say until fight week. I have to. Why fight week got obligations? That's the only time I do it. Other than that, I stay away from interviews. I don't have anything to say. And at the end, everybody doubted me. And I just, when it's all said and done, I got my hand ready. as I always do this. Like, just remember what you said, because I keep all receipts. 
I save tweets, <laughs> I screenshot messages, I, I record interviews, I keep them all for this reason, and then I air them all out after I win. Like, remember when y'all said this? I post. <laughs> like, what do y'all say now? So I love it. That's good stuff, man. You also fought August 24, 2013, Stephen Flanagan. Um, it's actually your third and last independent grind fight. <laughs> yeah. Everything happened within, what, six months? I debuted March, March 2nd. Fought my second one March 29th. Well, the smoke was March 2nd. The first one was March 29th. The next one was uh, June or whatever when I fought Myron. And then shortly after, I fought Flanagan. And uh, that was in Indiana, actually. In Evansville. Miguel's yeah. on Stompy Grunts. So check this out. He, he just laid it out. Within six months, three fights, and he's now trying out for the ultimate fighter. <laughs> right now, Corey, here's a question for you. I mean, a lot of people, even being good wrestlers, when I, it, it takes a while to mesh this all together and learn how to how to not get submitted, all this other stuff. Uh, are you just training twice a day, or how is this coming so quickly for you? I used to train twice a day. I mean, like I said, everything I do, I do it. I give it my all. And I'm the type to ask questions. I take notes. So if, like, I get caught in something, I'm not going to get caught in it. But, oh, I just got caught. No. After, I'm going to ask coach or the person, like, yo, what did you do to catch me? How did you do that? Like, what is it that you're doing? And then I make sure it don't happen again. If it happens again, I keep asking, like, yo, is there another way to defend it? And I've just always been that way. Since I started peeking and understanding how com com competing and how champs work, I listen to podcasts to, to have champs on it, just to hear the way they think and talk and the way they train. And I take things like that and I do it myself. So, and again, I didn't have an amateur career. People don't realize that. I never took, I took my first actual class in 2007, no, 18, after I got head kicked, knocked out by OSP. Other than that, I never took like a jujitsu class, a boxing class, a kickboxing class. I always just went into pro practice where it's just like a grind. Coaches call stuff out that everybody already knows. But as for me, I, I'm oblivious, but I'm not going to tell them I don't know. I just pay attention to what people are doing and just fit in. You know, sometimes I mess up like, yo, what are you doing? Like, my bad. I forgot the combo. But really, I just didn't know what I was doing. I just started studying seeing what somebody else was doing. Okay, okay, I got it. Then I do it. I got it. There you go. That was right. And it wasn't until after I got head kicked knocked out, I realized I don't know how to block head kicks. <laughs> I was like, I had no... I didn't know how to block the head kick. Like, so even if we kicked it in my hands, it was up, it probably still would have got me because I had no clue. Like, you're supposed to X block and try to use his hand yeah. to absorb the kick. And I remember one of my training partners, the glory kickboxer, and I told him, like, bro, you was at the fight. Like, I didn't know what, even if I did block, I didn't know what to do. I didn't start working with you kickboxing. And I went to like a basic kickboxing class with like mom and dads and kids learning. I'm like, yo, aren't you UFC fighter core? And like, I'm here to learn just like y'all. And after that, I would do boxing classes at my other gym. And I would go to my jiu-jitsu coach, like professor. I've never actually had, like to this day, I don't do submissions because I always grew up in a pro practice where you just ground and pound. Now I mastered that, but now I'm at the point where I'm learning submissions. It's I didn't grow up in a class where you learn submissions and college chokes and wearing the gi, the basic stuff. So I didn't know that. I've learned just swimming with the sharks the whole time. And one of the coaches said, like, you just have to learn on the job, man. You're going to go in. You're going to go pro. And every day is going to be a learning lesson for you. Just learn on the job. And if you got questions, ask. And that's all I've done my whole career. You yeah, know, no, I, 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 I'm sorry, ahead, Chris. Man. I just want to ask ahead, you, ahead, 
I just want to ask, do you have any regrets about that? Like, do you wish you had had like 10 or 15 fights on the independent grind uh, before the UFC to like prepare some of that stuff? Because God bless uh, Myron Dennis, because he took you 25 minutes and then all the other nonsense you say around the fight that, but that's the extent of your experience. That basically that fight, because everything else was kind of easy. I mean, as for like a regret or in times it's like, I wish I had those amateur fights. I wish I had more time to learn the lessons I learned on pay-per-view, you know, because all my biggest losses are always on pay-per-view, right. like biggest card or something, you know? So it's like, if you watch now, to this day, like, when a guy that's still fighting, I lost in the UFC on Twitter, every time they get ready to come to fight, I'm wearing a highlight knockouts, you know? And at the time, like, oh, you're talking about Corey Anderson, the greatest, he got knocked out by OSP, Jimmy Manuel, and these guys. But like you said, they don't, nobody knows my story. Like you said, people don't know my story. They don't realize I had three fights. They don't realize I grew up in this thing. I went from 0-0 to 0-3 to the top 10 in the UFC within a year of fighting. People don't understand that. Like, I beat Jan Blagovich my fifth fight ever. Right. Damn. <laughs> who was just a check. I beat the dog breaks off of my fifth fight ever on short notice. I knew nothing but a jab, cross, and wrestling. That's all I knew for that fight. And I went out there and dominated. People don't understand that. Because all they see is that last fight when we fought and I got knocked out. They don't realize what anybody can get caught. But it was more than just that. It was so much baggage I had. But we'll get into all that as we get later into the story. Right. So, so Corey, or, or Miguel is a, a former promoter. Imagine you can't find somebody to fight your main event. You get somebody last minute, he never even asks about money, never really asks about weight, and he shows up and beats your biggest ticket seller, someone that the entire locker room is afraid of. <laughs> like, that's like a promoter's wet dream that turns into, like, a nightmare, which very rarely, if ever, happens. <laughs> well, I'm a very rare case of person, I guess you can say, because yeah. I mean, to this day, me and Dale, he message me here and there after fights, and I comment on stuff on Facebook, and you know, all those guys, uh, there was another guy, Nickel, I can't remember his name. He has a jiu-jitsu program in uh, Oklahoma. He messaged me a lot or comments on my stuff a lot. And he goes, bro, I've been following you since we signed you. He's a co-promoter. Since we signed you for that fight, it's just amazing to see what you did. You went from your second fight to where you are now. And it's one thing they all say, you just never changed. I remember sitting in the hallway with you after the fight, drinking beers. Your personality has never changed. You're the same person. You kept the same mindset, which is why you are where you are. You know, so... I, I believe that's the fight that got you that gave you the credibility for the ultimate fighter to pay attention to. What do you think during the trial process was either the line or the moment that when you knew you made the show? When I dropped Matthews' name, I already know. I remember I made it through the grappling portion. I made it to the striking, I made it to the grappling, and I remember we was in there, and I can't remember, I, for some reason, I can't remember the producer's name, not Craig. Craig, I remember talking to him, and he was talking, he just had this look. I remember he had glasses on here, just sitting back in his chair, and he was looking. He was like, so, well, here was a line I said before I dropped Matt's name. Like, so, um, if we told you you were making the show, could you be ready to go in three weeks? I said, I was ready to go yesterday. You tell me I'm going. My bag's already packed. <laughs> so who do you train with that you think could make you ready for your awesome fight? Like, oh, I train with Matt. He's like, oh, you know Maddie. You know Maddie, my buddy Maddie. Matt, you know, I love Matt. This is this. And I was like, okay, Mr. Anderson, well, we like your story and we'll get back to you. But I knew after I said Matt's name, he jumped up in the chair. I knew, like, <laughs> I think I was going to be my golden ticket. Like, I know a big name guy. I believe at the time he was still the world champ. I was like, I think that's going to be my end. So 
and yeah, they called me in. That's good. Did you uh did you call Matt after this? Uh I actually trained with him after he I was in Lincoln, he was up in Litchfield. So I used to drive up to his farm and train with him at this little gym here and there, or he would come down to Lincoln and Russell or whatever. But he had already knew I was going to the tryouts. So that's cool. That's actually really cool. So Bobby Brent, the zombie freak, you guys show up to the ultimate fighter. I mean, obviously you make it, your other teammate does not. Um Kelly Annenson. And Undsen, that is a guy that you talked about earlier. He is the guy your coach in college brings in to kind of run you off the team, run you off the team. You leave the team, go somewhere else, and you see him. He's six and two, six and one out of the American top team. Did you know it was destiny that you were going to fight him that day? Yep. I told my coach, I told Bob right then, like, you know, if I make it, they're making me fight him first, right? Why don't you say that? <laughs> I like, just the politics of TV and drama, they know our story. Somehow, somewhere, they know our story. And we're going to be the ones to fight, and we're going to be the last fight. I guarantee you, if I make it, mark my words, I'm fighting Kelly. Bro, it's all these guys, it's like 100 guys here. You think you're going to fight him? Yep. And sure enough, <laughs> and I fought him. And it's funny because... Like, I thought maybe they actually had faith in me to come here and do something because of the way I talked to the media. But, again, Craig, the guy, I remember after every fight, he would come up and say something to me. I remember after I beat Kelly when I walked out of the cage and he came up and he grabbed me. He's like, I just want to let you know, Mr. Anderson, we kind of brought you on as a joke. Like, what you mean? He was like a kid with three fights. He was talking all this noise. We can beat everybody. We knew you had beef with you and Kelly. We figured if we get you in, we wanted Kelly to win. He was our number one pick. He got the background. He's got this. He was a Pan Am champ. This is that. We figure we get you in, and with the beef and the drama, he beat you. He can get in unhurt and have an easy road to the thing. And you went out there and beat him. Because I just want you to tell right now, Mr. Anderson, you got three fights to change your life. Three more fights. And the reason why they said to change your life, because when we came in, if you go back and watch before we fight, you hear Dana say, when they came in here and walked around a lot in the uh, arena, looked around it. One thing Corey said, he said, man, this is crazy. Tomorrow I'm either going to find out if my life is going to change or there's going to be another black guy. And he said, he said that right before I walked in. And Corey said, this could change his life or there's going to be another black guy. And uh, that's what he said. He got three fights to change your life. So after that, every fight, every time I will win, he'll come to the cage and tell me two more fights. All right, congratulations, Corey. One more fight. When I won the semis. Like, all right, Corey, you got one more fight. Change this could be it. One more fight. Congratulations, young man. One more fight. And those voices stick in my head because it's just like you said now. Like I love being an underdog for that reason. Cause I feel like my whole career since wrestling, everything I've done, nobody ever really believed Corey can do it. Cause if you knew where Corey was, if you knew Corey back when he was in Roxanne Negan, this 300 pound fat kid, lazy as shit that didn't want to do anything, you'd understand why nobody had faith in him. But they don't know what's inside me and the way the fire burns. So for that, I love being the underdog because I ignites that same fuel I had as a kid. Boy, I have a question for you. We we talked a lot of fighters who made it to the Ultimate Fighter. Some people really enjoyed that experience on there. Some people hated it. What was your uh, Ultimate Fighter experience like? What do you, did you did you get a lot out of it? I'm thankful for it. You know, and for me, it was a vacation because me and the girl I was with at the time was my first biggest girl. We broke up literally the week before I left. So. That my mind all up. But to be honest, we broke up because of the Austin fight. She, I wow. cheated at the beginning of our relationship, and she was scared when I went on and all that fame. I would, I would come back and cheat again. But she broke up with me, and I remember 
I was, I remember driving home at night and I was hurting. And when I left, it was still hurting, but at the same time, it was the only thing I could take my mind off of. Because if I'm still in this, if I'm out here fighting, I'm thinking about this female, I'm gonna get beat up. You know, so when I was locked in and not focus on her and focus on the fight, and by the end of it, it was like I wasn't really thinking about it. Every night I had a journal to this day, I got the journal here somewhere. And all the moving stuff I wrote in a notebook every day. That's like a journal. And it's titled My My Story for y'all some fighting. I'm gonna make it into a book one day, but I just gotta figure out how to do it properly. And I was reading it before we moved. And it was times in there in the house. I remember breaking down a room by myself where I would write down my feelings from the breakup in there. And then the next day I could tell after practice and all that, I had forgot about it because meeting with Frankie and Mark Henry. And again, if I didn't do the awesome fighter, I would never met the team that I train with now to get where I am. To this day, I still train with the same coach that happened after the fight. Mark Henry, Ricardo Almeida, Frankie Yeager, Steve Rivera, and I met some other guys in Jersey. Those have been my same coaches since the Ultimate Fighter in every single fight I've had throughout my career since then. And if it wasn't for the Ultimate Fighter, I would have never met them. I wouldn't be the person I am today as a martial artist because they taught me so much. So, so this guy was the first pick out of Team Pat or uh, Team Frankie Edgar. Did you get any Mark Coleman time while you were there? He was uh, one of BJ Penn's wrestling coaches. No, I mean, we would joke around at the house and whatnot, but never got to train with him. You know, he said it. When they picked me first, I remember Mark was like, oh, we want him first. And BJ was like, oh, that was our pick too. We're going to take him first. He's so long. He's long in his cardio. He could be like a John Jones. Like, we wanted him. And so, like, throughout the show, I would joke around with Mark Coleman at the house and whatnot, and we passed, we were passed by a red team going out of practice, blue team coming in, we would talk in the hallway, but I never actually got to train with him, you know, I never got to learn any of his legendary things that he did. Yeah, no, for sure. So, you, you really walked through the, the house, but it's like, it's like an all-star team. You got Extreme Couture's Josh Clark, the Hillbilly Heartthrob, he's seven and two. Amazing stand-up, no wrestling takedown defense. You get through him, you go Pat. What was that? That's last. Yeah, okay. You got Patrick Walsh. He's at a Y Crew Martial Arts, four and one. Both guys on Team Edgar. You get him as well, and then you uh, you wind up in the finals after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did they do between filming and your first fight with the Ultimate Fighter finale? Was it like eight months in between? Let's see. We went home. I got home, what, two days before Thanksgiving? And then the finale was July. So, yeah. July 6th. Yeah. But they started filming the other episode right behind us. Like, how did you pay your bills? The new house moved. The new other guys moved in. And I can't remember. I think the next episode was live, if I'm not mistaken. So so How'd you pay your bills? You're in the house. You're you're obviously captive, and now you got to go sit eight months and you can't fight. I went back to coaching and wrestling and doing what I was doing before I left. I was in fight. I was supervisor of a trucking company, so I was making I was making an hourly wage. But I was working supervisor hours. I work ten to twelve hours a day, making like I think I was making like eighteen dollars an hour. And after I hit my eight hours a day, it was time and a half. So I would just stay there in between training. If I didn't have to train that night when the wrestling season was over and the supervisor, the head supervisor, the regional supervisor called me and was like, Corey, I know you got a fighter. You want to fight, blah, 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 or whatever it is you want to train. You can come in early, clock in some hours, and go back to training. So I would do that all the time. 
I would go in whenever I wasn't doing something, just go in, clock in, do some part-time work, to add hours on, go home, go to practice, and come back after practice, like midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And I was just clocking up big checks, like, and just throwing it all in the bank. I could pay my rent within one week. So most guys, most fighters didn't have that gig that I had where my boss understood what I was chasing, and he allowed me to chase my dream and just come in when I could. Whenever I had free time, I could come in and clock in because the trucking company didn't close. It was like a 24-hour process. So anytime I wanted to come in and clock in and get hours, he would let me do that so I can save money. When I had a fight or something coming up, I didn't have to come to work. He would let me just train and knew I had money or hours clocked in on it. I mean, right there, that just shows what kind of person you're dealing with because most people I know, they ain't doing that. You know, like, hey, I don't have to go. I'm not going to work today. I need to be ready. I mean, Corey's doing it at midnight. Six in the morning, whatever. I mean, just hustling the whole time, working, making that money when he has to. That's that's cool. Yeah, you know, and I would at that time I was training three times a day, and I had an anytime fitness pass. And I remember one of my college teammates here just got into fighting. Like, I want to learn to grind from you. I want to come stay with you. He stayed on my couch. I remember the first night he did. I got home from work at like twelve thirty, and I woke him up. Like, what you doing? I'm like, time to go train. What you mean? Like, we got anytime fitness pass, baby. Train anytime. <laughs> We got strength and conditioning, one o'clock in the morning. Like, bro, you crazy? Like, don't we gotta get up at six thirty? Like, yep. So we better get moving. <laughs> and he's like, bro, you are insane. Like, it's a reason why I made it. Where I made it, bro. Let's go. You want to be great? Follow me. And that's just that was the way I was. It was work, train, work, train. Again, with the breakup still on my mind. This is the stuff that kept her off my mind and just keep me going. Chris, keep this. Keep in mind, his wrestling coach said he was lazy. Well, like, yeah, this, <laughs> this isn't something that just pick up. Maybe that motivated him. I don't know. No, let me I, I was lazy in high school and in my freshman year. At this point, I had already been with Bradley and back in Bradley's presence. He like he really. I can tell anybody if anybody asks me like what made you where you are now. Like my father was a hard worker. I always put hard work. You got to go one hundred twenty percent, two hundred percent. You got to go hard all the time. But what Coach Bradley, what Stephen Bradley instilled in me is just. A different thing that a father, I guess, couldn't teach. A father can teach you, but I understand it because I, I tell anybody, I would take a bullet. I wouldn't take a bullet for anybody. But Stephen Bradley, I would take a bullet for so he can do for my life what he, what he did for me, so he can do it to other kids throughout this world. And I see him today, like we did practice today. I'm his assistant coach now at Marion University. And I watch him tell the kids the same thing he told me back in 2007, 2008, 2009. And it's like, I tell the kids, like, yo, why, how do you think I got where I am? Everything he's telling you is the same thing he's been telling me. Like, he was in my corner for my first four UFC fights, and he would give me the same speech he gave me wrestling as he would give me before I go into a fight. And every time it would pump me up because he's just, I don't know, he was one of the few people that believed in me. And what he saw, nobody else did. And he created exactly what he said he would, a fucking monster. And look at me look. now. now you just, I, I wanted to ask you about the Tough 19 house, you know, because you did like you, we've been talking about. You didn't have a lot of fights before that, and a lot of the guys that be, that did the UFC house felt like it was training for the media and having a camera in your face and stuff. Any weird experiences there, or anybody rub you the wrong way, or anything? Because that would all be new to you, right? It was all very new, like meeting Frank Yeager. Like I didn't know who Hizo Gracie was. I remember when he came in as our special guest. I was like, oh my god, Hizo Gracie! Like who? Like Hizo Gracie? I'm trying to read the paper, like. Renzo, what? Like, Renzo, Renzo. Like, like, 
It's like one of the original parties that we made. Like, I had no clue. And I remember in the house, they were talking about, like, yeah, I fought this guy. I'm 10 and 1. And this is like, what's your record? Like, I'm 3 and 0. Like, yeah, no way this kid's winning. He's a rookie. He's not winning this show. And I remember to this day, I did a podcast with Eric Gordon or, uh, not Eric Gordon. Truck, Eddie Gordon, Eddie Truck Gordon, his podcast, Keep Trucking, Forever Trucking, a few months ago. He said, you remember what I told you in the locker room that day? And, like, I was a cocky kid. Like, I believe I can beat everybody. And they being there talking to coach, and I was just coming like, your coach, forget what they're talking about. What do I got to do for this? I just interrupt everybody's questions to get mine. And I was like, the coach, fuck your problems. You think this is a Corey Anderson show? This is the other fight. This ain't the Corey Anderson show. I'm like, the hell it ain't. <laughs> Every time we talk, like you believe, like you remember, I said that, and it came out to be it was a Corey Anderson show. To this day, out of all the people on the show, you are the only one doing everything you said you would do, and you still doing a hundred percent. And it's just like, bro, I just at the time I was a young, dumb kid just talking, but I believed in myself even then as I do now. And it's just like I said, I. I didn't know what I was doing. I just had belief and faith in what I can do, and everything just worked out. So it was a lot of things like that. People were like, oh, there's no way Corey can win. He's 3-0. and um, Again, when those guys were drinking on the show, one thing with training, when they, I'm in campus, if I don't drink. So when they would all be drinking and whatnot, I would have injuries. I remember I busted, broke my nose on the show. But I never told anybody. I told the EMTs. But when everybody would all drink, was out drinking, I would sneak out the back door and they had an ice cooler outside and I'll put ice in like my pillowcase and go back to my room and then put the ice on my nose under the pillowcase under the blanket so nobody knew my nose was busted. I messed my wrist up once, same thing, go get ice and just be underneath my bed, like in the room, like I'm just chilling, everybody drinking, but really under the cover, I'm icing my injuries so people didn't know I was hurt because we all shared a house. So if somebody know I'm hurt, they're going to say, aim for his nose, hit him in the nose right away, it's going to be over. <laughs> So I would like do stuff like that, or I would be in the room reading my Bible, just keeping it myself, just to keep everybody away from me, doing stuff that like all oh, these guys boring. Let's leave, and then when they would leave, I would stretch or start working on my wrist or ice my nose, whatever the problem was, you know. So other than that, other than the this ain't the Corey Anderson show, I don't have many stories because I just kept to myself to be honest. Well, what was Castle Pendred like? I don't know if you guys remember him, but he was an Irish guy that kind of had that next uh, Conor McGregor tab. He could be like a Paddy, the baddie, but he fell apart and got beat up and, and then never fought again, actually. But he was a big mouth. His mother painted herself in the Irish colors to get him on the show and stuff. Did he stick out or was he, or did he really not make it? He did seem like a golden boy, but it wasn't like he wasn't running his mouth like Connor and Patty. He didn't do all the talking, but you can tell the way he carried himself in the way the from like when the production team and everybody would come in with like our groceries and stuff, like when the way they would talk to him, like they treated him like he was already a Connor S. I remember when he had his beard, he came on the show and he had his beard, and throughout the show, he shaved it. And I remember the first time during a live record that the producers actually buzzed into the scene, like we in there playing pool. You see these guys run upstairs like, yo, what the fuck? Like, yo, is the house on fire? And they bust in the bathroom like, no. He was in there shaving his beard. And they had already marketed him as the Irish with the red beard or whatever. And they were so upset. Like, you can't do that. Like, we've already started marketing you for your beard. Like, you can't. And it was like, everybody else shaved their beard. They were shaving their head. They were changing stuff every day. But nobody else, they say anything about. But when Kathal shaved his beard, I remember them losing. Like, they came flying up the stairs. 
trying to stop him before he got too far because I guess they had already his image is going to be the guy with the red beard or something. I don't know. But yeah. It's wild. Yeah, he's the one that didn't hold water for, for the fans out there, you know. Uh, God bless him because he, he put in an effort. I'm not putting him down, but at the highest level, he didn't hold up. So we'll see how Patty does. Anyway, might take yeah, over. Very, very few <laughs> make it at the top level. That's why it's the top level. It's just like growing up, every kid says, I'm going to be an NFL player. And your coach says, let's be realistic. It's a hundred got 100,000 people in this area that want to be pro football players, and maybe one will make it. You know what I mean? So he made it to the UFC, but like you said, he just didn't pan out. He won his first two, I think, and after that, he just lost, got finished all three after that. That was it. Yeah, cream rises to the top, man. I mean, if not, you're going to get drank up. That's just what happens at that level. So Matt Van Buren, it's July 6, 2014. This is the finale. You go and live with Frankie Edgar's father-in-law. How long was your camp? How long did you stay there? Would you mind bringing us through that process? It was 10 weeks. I ended up staying in the attic for eight months. Um, <laughs> you I didn't move out. Saying- yeah, I did. And it was no point in going home. I remember telling my family when I left you off the fire, like, I'll come home when I'm the champion. At the time, I meant <laughs> tough champion. So I'll be back when I'm the champion. And I meant tough. And I won. And after I won, I flew home after. I remember I just posted a picture. The the fight was the sixth on the seventh. It popped up my memory. On the seventh, I was back home taking my best friends out for a night out on me, you know, because I always said, when I make it, we make it. And uh, after that, I flew right back to Jersey. And then they was like, yo, what you doing here so soon? I was like, I'm here to grow. I got to learn. I got a lot more learning to do so I can beat John Jones. And I remember Mark Henry to this day. He was like, bro, calm down. Like, pipe down. That's like one of the greatest right now. You just had your first fight. You got a long way to go before you get there. Let's just take it easy and let's slow it down. Going into the last fight with Nimkov, I remember telling Mark Henry, because Mark Henry said, this is like, bro, I can't believe like where we came from. You are the best light ever in the world. And I truly believe it. He's, I say all the time, you remember that first day I came back and I said, I'm here to beat John Jones. And you're like, yo, pipe down. We got a long way to get there. And now we there. That gets crazy, right? Eight years consistency. Eight years you stayed in New Jersey. And you st- I came back after every camp. Like, yo, why do you keep coming back? Like, you just fought Saturday. It's Monday. Why are you here? Like, I'm here to train. Like, yo, go home. See your family. Like, I go home <laughs> on the train. And that was it. I ended up living in New Jersey for eight years. I stayed in the attic for eight months. Eight months later, uh, one of my college teammates was like, yo, you in New Jersey? So yeah, he's like, I live in New Jersey. He sent me his address. I happened to be 10 minutes down the street from Frank Yeager's father-in-law. I went and visited him. He had this nice house, just him. Like, yo, you can move in here. Me and you, we can be roommates. The guy from Newberry, actually. We ended up hanging out. He was with his girl, still from Newberry. They ended up getting serious. He moved out with her. I took over his house. I met my wife moved down. It's, it's just a crazy thing. But like I said, I stayed until I'm going to be What was Frankie team. Edgar's father-in-law like? Because he was a big part in Frankie's development as well. The most generous man in America. I said to the day I died, Jerry Nappy, I remember I pulled up at the house. It was April 29th or something like that. I pulled up 2 o'clock in the morning, me and my brother – and my brother make me look small. Big old scary dude. Don't smile. It's pitch black. We get out. We knock on the door. 
They come over the door like, yeah, I've been waiting for you to arrive. Welcome to New Jersey. This is it. Super friendly. Like, before we get in the house, that red Mustang over there, the keys are always in it. If something goes wrong with your car, you're more than welcome to take it. Another thing, I don't lock doors. Because somebody want to break something, or somebody wants something, they're going to break it, they're going to get it. I'd rather just take it and damage my stuff than be walking through the house. Like, so, we got two places we can go. We got the upstairs at, we got downstairs apartment. You go downstairs, Edson and Marlon Moraes at the time, I met them from Ultimate Fighter. I didn't really know them well. Like when they come back in the camp, they live there. So if you go down there, you have to move back upstairs. So I went upstairs. He showed me throughout the whole house. You got the kitchen here. You've got three refrigerators downstairs for your groceries. There's another kitchen down there. Kitchen here. Outside kitchen. Any room that's open, you can stay there. Anything in the house you want, help yourself too. You don't have to call me. You don't have to ask me anything. Anything you want. Never met me or my brother in the blue. We just pulled up at his house. Anything you want in the house, anything you need. We have everything. If it's something you can't find, you call me. If it's something you need, we'll get it. We're going to make sure you have a great camp. Blah, blah, blah. This is like, yo, thank you, Mr. Navi. He said, just call me Jerry. And I remember moving up in the attic, and I talked to him here and there, going up and down the stairs. But in that eight months I was there, he never came in the room to check on me. He never questioned me. He never asked me anything. I remember the day I moved out, he was like, Corey, you know you don't have to leave, right? You can stay here rent-free. You don't have to pay anything. Like I clean up the garage for you so you can put the Harley in. You want me to clean for your car too? Like, no, like I'm a man. I gotta go do man things. I gotta pay my own bills. I gotta take care of myself. Like, I gotta ask you one question though. You've been here eight months. I've never seen you in the kitchen. How did you eat for eight months? I took my and showed him. I went and got a rice cooker and an electric skillet. And I lived in the attic and there's like a little window. And I built a table in the attic window and I'll, I'll make a smoke, go out the window. And I did that for eight months. And he was like that. And he said, just like Chris, that speaks for your that speaks by on the kind of person you are. Like, you made a kitchen in an attic in a mini fridge, and you survived for eight months, and you never called me or asked me for anything. Like, I didn't feel like a man if I asked another man for help. I'm sorry. And I, was, <laughs> and I remember leaving, and to this day, like, we stopped by when my wife moved out. She was my girl at the time. She moved in with the nappies, you know, just to make sure everything was going to work out. She figured it all out, figured everything out. And the same thing with her. When she was there, they never bothered her. They never asked her anything. They never asked for money. And to this day, we'd go by, we leave church. Our church is by their house, where it was. Their house burned down right before we left, which is sad. We used to drive by and uh, bring the kids by. You know, they go by, let the kids play and hang out, and then we go home. So to the Good day, people, huh? Oh, the most generous man in America. To the, I say it to the day I die. I've never met a man like everybody. The Russians is the beat. To more valid, Chris Lagori, Antoine Jaquani. It's been what Justin Poirier, Justin Gaethje, Dustin Ortiz, Michael Chandler. Everybody and they all just stayed in Jerry's house, and they all get the same treatment. You come in, any room that's open is yours. That Mustang is out there. Something go wrong with your car? The keys is in it. Take it. You're more than welcome to anything here. It's the same treatment for everybody. He does a lobster broil every year. And he puts signs around the town and says, everyone is invited. Strangers are just friends we haven't met. He has crates and crates and crates of lobsters delivered. And his whole street is usually packed with cars, people you've never seen in your life. They just seen a sign downtown. He, they come <laughs> over, give them a plate, they eat, and they leave. He says nothing about it. Says, How many do you want? You want one or two? You want a hot dog or something else with it? They eat and they leave. He has no problem. Never had anybody bring to his house. Nobody ever stole from him, but everybody knows Jerry is just that guy. He's a guy that if you ever ran for political office, it'd be like a 99%. He'd be, he's one of those guys. He's that guy. Like, Jerry, I am. 
Yeah. yeah. He said it. I was the only person after I was my fighter, after my fight, before I got into my interview, I just said, I want to give a thank you to Jerry Nabb because it was with him. This camp wouldn't have been that easy. He let me stay in his attic for his whole camp and never bothered me once. And he, I remember calling me. I was like, I've never cried in a fight, but I cried like a baby up in that crowd because nobody ever gave me recognition for what I've done for my career. And you actually made it live on TV and made sure everybody knew that if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have made it here. And, I mean, that's just – it wasn't like I was doing it to get any clout. Like, I was just thankful because it wasn't him. That outcome wouldn't have happened for that fight. Yeah, it was really nice. You did it You did it against Justin Jones. Justin Jones comes in. It's his first UFC fight. He's a debuter for the UFC. He's working out with Dean Lister. Comes with Dean's seal of approval. Everyone's talking about how hot he is. He's got iridium management. And it's like, this is supposed to be the next big thing. Did you, you have any concerns going into that bout? Again, I didn't know who he was. I knew nothing about him. It was just another guy to me. You know what I mean? The only thing I saw, I saw uh, the one thing I remember when we was walking away, he had his fight shorts, and he had some boxing gym camp on his shorts. And my thing is I, I do research on everybody I fight. I dig in. Like, you dig this for this interview. When we get to the fight, I know what you're going to do before you do it. Like, I study film, and there's no film on it. So, nothing to find. He had, like, four or five fights, but it was all quick. And I seen the boxing patch on his shorts, and I Googled that, and they had him listed on there. And that night, I remember before the fight, that's when I finally got to see film on him. I went to that boxing gym, and they had highlights of him, and something led me to another one where I saw his two quick finishes with chokes and whatnot. But other than that, there was nothing else to know other than that boxing program. So... It was nothing to fear. For me, it was unknown. I know nothing about this guy. He's just nobody, just like I'm a nobody. And I'll be the body. Everybody remembers him like so. He was a hell of a nail. Yeah. <laughs> that dude, he took a pounding, man. Yeah. That was a fun one, too. I remember that's when I still – I love the game again now, but at that time, that's when it was like, yo, I'm just enjoying it. I was having a blast. And I remember him hitting me once with like a big old hook. And it hurt. And I was like, holy shit, let me back up a little bit. Let me get some space. Guy, right, now it's time to have fun. I remember that was the first time I landed an elbow in a fight. Me and my uh my buddy, my best friend Frank Berezzi, I practiced this drill called Slow Glow. Slow Glow. But if you've seen uh coming to America, the Slow Glow with the hair grease and all that. <laughs> well, when they all put the hair back, he was like, I want to throw your elbow like this, like suck your head, like rub your head, like you ripped the slow glow out of your hair or something. I remember him in the corner, he said, So glow, slow glow. And now the first time I went, I did a little jump in Superman elbow that landed. And I was like, yo, that was dope. But I did that, my first Superman punch, my first liver kick. And I, I just had fun because I just went after a lot of new things in that fight because I just was careless because I didn't know this guy, thought he couldn't do nothing to me. So I was like, I'm just going to try everything I ever tried in practice on this fight. And I did just about that. Put it together. April 18th, 2015. UFC's on flags. You got a fight of the night bonus against Gian Vellante. Gian Vellante, 12 and 5 out of Fillmore Kickboxing Academy. Um, Mark Henry isn't real happy with you in between rounds of this fight. What was going on? It wasn't that he wasn't real happy with me. People don't understand. My teeth was crushed out in that fight. What's my, that? I had my teeth crushed out in the first 45 seconds of that fight. I Your teeth? Uh huh. If you look here, I got a scar. You see that scar? Yeah, um, I'm shooting the first shot I take. If you go back and watch, it's like 47 second mark. I take a shot and you see me bounce up. I shoot. He can throw a front kick, 
I hit his knee. When I hit his knee, my teeth fall right here, crush out, and go to the back of my mouth. So in the oh. corner, Marcus is like, yo, why are you talking like that? Why can't I hear you? And I'm like, oh, my teeth hurt now. And I take my tongue and I stick pull my teeth out to the front of my tongue. My teeth are in the back of my mouth. Like, my teeth are crushed in, coach. And he was just looking at me like, okay, okay. Well, anyway, so you <laughs> the whole time, every time Never I'm like, that. He's like, you sure you don't want to stop this fight? Like, coach, I ain't stopping shit. Like, are you sure you want to keep going? Like, yeah, we're going to keep going. And everybody's like, yo, how your teeth got? I'm like, I'm good, coach. I remember the ref coming. I'm like, yo, where's that blood coming from? And it's like, oh, I'm holding my teeth up with my tongue. And you're talking about pain. Like, I'm trying to wince. I'm like, like see, no, no, it's my mouth bleeding. I'm like, holding my teeth in place so you don't see, like, they're missing. And you talking about excruciating pain every time I got hit. Uh, but the one thing he wasn't happy about for that fight is all camp. He told me the only way this kid can beat you is an overhand right. Sometimes you get lazy, you throw your hook, and you bring your hand back down. Throw your hook and you bring it back. Throw your hook and bring it back. Because if the only way he's going to catch you is an overhand right with 54 seconds left, I throw my hook and he throws the overhand right, and I bring my hand here instead of bringing it out like he said, he catches it. And that was the only thing he was very upset about. And I remember when I came to in the back, like I started remembering stuff. He was like, bro, I remember just, the one thing I said is bring your hand back. Only way the kid could beat you is an overhand right. I saw the scorecards. You was up on all three scorecards. You let the overhand right hit you, Corey, like overhand right is all I told you. And if you look back at Tuesday, you asked Mark, all five of my losses, he predicted the way I was like, he said, if I was not I just with all my fights, he said, only way you got is this. For the five fights I lost, he said it exactly. Each one, only way you can lose this fight, Jimmy Man, only way you can lose this fight is when you start circling against the cage, he's going to throw a hook. You either dip, you shoot, or you keep your hand up and go through it. Do not reach. Do not reach. You got to have the reach on God's face. And you leave the temple open every time. Jimmy Fake, I did this. Lights out. OSP. Only way this guy can beat you is that left high kick. That left high kick. When you stay in the middle, if you're going to slip, slip left. He's southpaw. You slip right a lot. Slip left. Do not slip right. Third round, going into that fight, going back in, like, yo, you're killing this guy. Stay to the outside. You don't have to do nothing. Just dance around the outside. Remember, do not go right. I remember right before when he saw it coming, like, don't. And that's all I remember. I remember <laughs> don't go right. He seen the way I was like, don't. And I, I was lights out. And I came to him, like, bro, I told you, don't go right. In the last fight with Yam, my last fight in the UFC, He's like, only way this guy can beat you, you try to stay standing with him, he throws a big right hand. He's going to load up that Polish power right hand. You just got to go out there and wrestle. Don't even try to strike with him. And I didn't even listen. I went out there and just tried to strike with him, and it cost me. So it is what it is. Mark is like a scientist like that. But it is what it is now. Did, did you break your hand in that fight? Because there's a few times where you connected where you actually slapped them instead of keeping your hand closed. Which fight? With Gian. Oh, no. I don't think I broke one. I've never broke Yeah, you slapped him a couple times. Oh, no. That's just because that's how Mark throws. It's a code Mark does. But we throw away a hook and slap. Slap him with the hook. You don't hit him here. It's fast enough to keep overhand. If I try to ball up the fist, y'all says, but you make your fist sometimes and make you tense up. But if you just slap, it's kind of like open hand. Flick it out there. So I would slap the hook and throw the right hand. So that's the thing Mark shows me all the time. Slap the hook. Most people, you think slap, they think like they're slapping here. But no, Mark actually wants you like slap him, open hand, slap him in the face, 
and then hit him with the right hand. Okay. Yeah, I thought there were some issues. Your bounce back fight, Chris, you always try to think of the fighter's best interests whenever after a loss, especially something you were in a fight that you were winning. Jan Blakovich, future UFC world champion, is your bounce back fight. Is this a Joe Silva special? Is this him trying to be, you know, maybe not a nice guy? I guess. They called me and was like, yo, uh, who is he supposed to fight? He's supposed to fight Anthony Johnson. And then, no. <clears throat> Something happened. He was supposed to fight somebody. They wanted him to fight Anthony Johnson. Anthony was on that same car. They're like, no, Anthony fight Jimmy Manuel. And somehow my name got thrown in there to fight Jan. He was ranked 12. And I just came off of getting knocked out. And on short notice, and I'm like, okay, I'll do it. Short notice. Wait, hold up, Corey. Short notice. Go ahead. How did you beat him? I went out there and dominated him with wrestling, baby. Just took him down and grounded him. Cardio. That too. Cardio and wrestling. Gassed him out in the first round, and that was it. I have a question for you. How was your relationship with uh, Joe Joe Silva? I mean, did he did you get a lot? We have a lot of a lot of people having bad stories about it. How was your relationship? I mean, we didn't have a relationship. Last only thing I heard from well, I've talked to him twice. Once at the UFC summit, he came up to us, me and my boy Frankie. He was cracking these jokes about how he went by. I started laughing. You know how people do that little fake ha 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 laugh just to <laughs> keep entertained. Well, I'm a real ass dude. Like if it ain't funny, I ain't gonna laugh. So he said it's him. I'm just like, he looking like, yeah, hey, lighten up, hey. Eh? I'm like, what you mean? Like, I'm cool. He's like, crack a smile, like, ain't nothing funny to smile about. <laughs> <laughs> and he leave. He called my manager. My manager Ali called him like, "Yo, bro, what did you just do?" And we talking about like Joe Silva just called me and said you a fucking dick. Like <laughs> I didn't laugh at his joke. I'm sorry. Like I'm supposed to laugh. Like bro, you gotta fit in with these guys. Like that's the thing. I don't care to fit in. Like I'm I'm gonna be me. Like I'm not gonna fake something to kick with somebody. And then the only other time I talked to him after that was uh oh uh, and through email because everybody get those the uh out-of-pocket bonuses they talk about, whatever. Well, again, it was a short-notice fight. I fought Fabio Maldonado, who was number 12 again, on short-week notice, on a week-and-a-half notice in Brazil. I go out there. I beat him by dom domination, wrestling, unanimous decision, 10-8, 10-8, 10-9, and everybody getting these bonuses. And I'm, like, talking for like, yo, I got my bonus. You get your bonus? Like, no, I never got a bonus. So I hit him up, like, yo, am I getting a bonus now for that fight? He's like, nah, that was a boring-ass fight. I don't get bonuses boring fights. And that was it. I didn't say shit else to him. Never had a conversation Chris, with him other than that. Chris, 30-25 on two different judges' cards on a last-minute fight. There's no way you can predict. Oh, there's no way his cardio is through the roof. We just got to weather the storm a little bit. Maybe make him, you know, shoot his wad in the first you know, round. I've never seen anything like that in my life, man. It is. I mean, I'm a cardio machine. I train year-round. There is no off-season. Yeah, I mean, that's just – Thing. Everybody want to take vacations after a fight. You, no you, see, you see, Corey, I, I agree with you, man. Uh, one thing, like a lot of people, they say when they have a fight camp, it's like a 10-week camp. I'm like, man, if you're in shape, I don't see how you do a 10-week camp. Like if you're training all the time and they call you and they tell, call you tell you got to fight, I'm like, man, I, I like a six-week camp is all I could do. If I, like my coaches wouldn't let me do it like a seven or eight-week camp because I might get hurt because I'm overtraining then. So, if you in shape all the time, I think it's hard to do a long ass camp. You just if you in shape, you don't need to do a long ass camp. Yeah, I mean, I always say I do like ten week camps, but really I'm camp year round. Only thing yeah. I do for ten weeks is I start getting guys that, that implement what my opponent is going to do. So 
for those 10 weeks, everybody I bring in, I have you guys like, all right, just do it. He's going to throw a kick. He's going to do submission. 10 weeks of just working out. But other than that, I'm training year-round. I'm taking care of my body. I'm doing yep. physical therapy, chiropractic, ART, cryo, all the stuff daily to keep my body in check like I'm in camp every day. How was how was the Brazil experience? And and because Maldonado's a good nail too. We were talking. You Mike mentioned Justin Jones was a good nail. I mean Maldonado's like maybe the all time nail. Well, here let me let me let me paint the table on that. I just set the table on we go. So November second, two thousand fifteen, UFC Fight Night. Tom Lawler falls off the card, and the twenty two and eight Fabio Maldonado needs a need, needs a fill in. This gentleman fills it in like less than a week. Who didn't have a passport at the time either? <laughs> I was like, they called me. My man's like, yo, you want to fight? I'm like, yeah. And I saw the USC start emailing me. The fight is five days away. What? This is Monday. So I got to be out there in a day or two. They're like, yo, can you send us your passport and stuff? We got to get you on the flight. Like a passport. Like, again, I didn't ask any questions. I just said, yeah. I didn't know where the fight was at. It's like, yeah, the fight is in Brazil. Like, I've never been out of the country. Like, how do you get out of the country? Like, you have to have a passport. Like, you don't have a passport? Like, no. Like, you already signed a bond agreement. You don't have a passport? Like, no. Like, you need to go to the Philadelphia Embassy right now, take this paperwork, go across street, get something to eat, and come back in, like, 45 minutes. And I did exactly that. Went there. They had this line for Express. I went, like, I'm supposed to give you all this. Like, come back in 45 minutes. Went across, grabbed a burger, came back, I had a passport. Went home, packed my bags, went back to Philly, jumped on a plane. I was in Brazil. Next thing you know, it was nice. together, got my best friend and two of the coaches, and we went out there and did our thing. Um, like he said, uh, Miguel asked, what was my experience? Paint that picture. Uh, that was the first time I heard that. You, Halloween, or whatever they say. In the stadium, it was a small stadium. I remember being hot as balls. And when they announced the next fight coming up, the Brazil versus American, all night you're here. But right now, I'm in a tunnel with the curtain. And I happened just to peek outside the curtain just to see the crowd. And one of the Brazilian friends saw me. I seen a point. And they all start that chant. They start stomping. So the whole arena just starts to shake. And I'm sitting down in the tunnel looking at my boy like, yo, what are they saying? <laughs> one of our coach, Mark Henry, he coaches Essen and all those guys. He's like, bro, it means, you're, oh, no, Ricardo Almeida. He was, that's what he said. He said, it means you're going to die. Like, what the fuck do you mean you're going to die? <laughs> like, what? Hold on, wait, what? Like, is the Who, me? If I, like, if I win, the fans are going to kill me. Because I'm worried about this is how we intimidate people. Go out there and do what you do. Like, hold on. Somebody tell me I'm going to die. I got to ask questions. Like, <laughs> I need to know. So I remember just going out there and just wrestling. Like, this guy has a Brazilian boxer. Mark Henry said, how many Brazilian boxing champs do you know? He's, what, 29 and 1 with 28 knockouts or something. Like, how many Brazilian champs you know in the world? Like, think about that. Go out there and just wrestle. Don't worry about it. I just wrestle. Three rounds and beat the crap out of it. But after, the fans loved me at the hotel. They came and drank beer with us in the hotel, so they didn't want to kill me after that. So, (laughs) did you have an issue part of that with your teammate John Valente? Well, who John Valente did he break your teeth when he broke uh in a fight with him? Yeah, that was a fight. That was uh oh, John Valente. I apologize. So, you were were they were they healed because this is you you talk about your teeth being broken two fights ago, they came out of the they came out again in the Yam fight. So what they did, they gave me root canals and they braced them across the front and across the back. Well, in training, somehow 
the stuff that they had at first in the front, the putty, whatever, started chipping. So as I, I would drive and I'd be picking at it and I end up breaking the whole front. The thing that breaks in the front, like the whole thing came off like the fuck. Well, this is in the back still, still in the back. When the first takedown with Jan, he throws an uppercut, catches it, and it cracks to the back of brace, and it breaks out. To be honest, I really just got the stuff off the back of the teeth after the Bader fight. I went to the dentist and told him, like, yeah, I never got that stuff taken off. Like, am I teeth healed enough yet? It was been healed for years. You can definitely get it off now. But, like, I just ended up getting a custom mouth guard that I still use this day. I had a two-sided one. I had this one that I told the guy, I want one of them old-school boxing mouth guards, super thick. Leave the top professionally molded to my teeth and the bottom. Let me boil the bite it just to get deep all the way down to my gums so my teeth don't move anymore. So to this day, I just still use that same mouthpiece. Wow. With, with Tom Lawler, like Chris, as you know, there's not a lot of experience. Like he's fighting a lot of high experienced guys, but like he's only had one issue, which ended up in a loss. But he never really kind of got to see somebody weather the storm. That opening exchange with Tom Lawler. Told you everything you need to know about Corey Anderson. Uh, ooh, had me on stanky legs early, boy. I'm, <laughs> I remember that fight. The only reason I remember because I remember when he hit me with that shovel hook, little check hook. He caught me over the top way, and I remember being wobble. And for one second, I look up and I see the clock, and it's like four minutes and thirty seconds left. And the only thought that came to my mind, only thought that came to my mind, like I am not getting knocked out in the first minute. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I get a break and I'm watching the clock. And I see, all right, now it's a minute. If I got knocked out now, it's okay. But I don't know why I'm thinking that. But I let him go. And Mark was just like, and it's crazy. Mark, we worked this cold call spot for a guy who always slips to one spot. If he always slips into the one spot, throw the spot, hit his shoulder. That's a spot. That's where his head going. Spot, spot. Well, for some reason, Tom, he wasn't slipping, but the way he was moving, he would always like do a TikTok movement. And Mark would say, watch the spot, watch the spot. And every time I was hit, I was like throwing the right hand. I kept catching it, pushing him back. And that's what saved me because I was hurt for right, the whole first round. And I heard Mark say, spot, spot. And I kept, every time he would come, I'd throw the right hand. And it would hit him and push him back. I just kept throwing the right hand, just the right hand, right hand. I remember in, in between the rounds, Mark, how you feeling? Like, I'm good now, but I was hurting. He's like, I remember, we go spot, inside leg kick. Because he's softball now. So it's going to be your right leg. Just throw that answer. Just keep throwing that right leg kick in the right hand. That's it. That's all I want you to do until you get a chance to shoot. And that's all I did. I remember that inside leg kick in the spot. Inside leg kick in the spot. And that's what saved me that fight until he got tired and I was able to take him down. But, yeah, he definitely, like you said, he came on hit me with that hook. It was – that was almost lights out for me. <laughs> I remember I was like, oh, shit. I ain't never feel like this before. Like, I feel drunk high and on a roller coaster at the same time. <laughs> but we survived and we prevailed. Your trip back to Brazil, UFC 198, May 14, 2016. Mauricio Hua. Man, I, I don't want to say it. But you had it, Corey. I was cheating on that one. I think so, too. <laughs> I, I think so, but... Go ahead. Okay, well, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna go right to the end to the airport on the way home. I remember it was Big Dan Margata, Mike Beltran, and I can't remember the other thing. He's a ref, but he was a judge that night. And I remember those guys in the airport like, yo, I still to this day, all right, to this moment, I don't understand how Corey loses that fight. Look at the punch count. Like I had out punched him like 97 strikes. I took him down eight times. I think the punch count was like 100 and 
12 to like 20 something, something like that. I took him down eight times. He dropped me once and he caught my kick the other time and I fell down. And I remember when I was talking about it, I know where the ref that was a judge that night, he was sitting in the airport with his head down, like, listen to him talk. I know where you're here. It was me. But it was an American judge. But everybody like, gotta be those Brazilian judges and stuff. The Brazilians, we can't trust these Brazilians no more. And he goes, it was me. And everybody like, what? And he says, it was me. Like, what do you mean it was you? Like, I was the judge that scored it 10-8 to Shogun. They're like, how the fuck do you see 10-8? Like, what do you see 10-8 at? Like, how is it 10-8 any round? He was like, well, from my angle, let me explain now. I was sitting behind Corey. So when he fell the second time, it looked like he got dropped again. So I marked it 10-8 like he got knocked down twice. I didn't know it was a kick. And I'm not going to judge ever again. I'm not judging anymore. And I remember Mark Henry that whole, whole ride, 12 hours back, he's sitting in the seat right in front of me, like on the plane. I'm just, I got a head on the back of the seat. I'm just thinking about it, like, yo, I can't believe it. Screw me this fight. And Mark keeps saying, I'm like, bro, bro, like in my heart. Like, we got stabbed, backstabbed, but in the heart by an American judge. Can you believe it? Like, just put it there and twist the dagger. I'm like, coach, just chill, bro. Like, stop. I don't want to think about it no more. And the whole way home, he just talked about the car ride. I remember I got home. I uh, didn't cry after that fight. I remember walking in my room. I dropped my bag. I started to shed a tear. I, for some reason, I wipe it. I grab my book bag. I jump in my car, and I drive 14 hours home. I haven't slept in three. I just can't get it out of my head. And it's just, I just had to hit the open road just to clear my head of how I got screwed in this fight. What, what, at time, I day let me kind of kind of bring everybody what happened. Corey is dominant. Like the punch count's so lopsided, and there's no there's no mistaking who was winning the fight. But in the last ten seconds of rounds one and two, Corey gets dropped in round one, like ugly dropped in round one. Ten seconds left. Round two, it's like it, it looks like he gets knocked down, but it's like something with a kick, and maybe he's a little off balance. But every other second of that round, other than like twenty seconds, like, there's you didn't lose a second of that fight. Uh, yeah, I remember I did an interview and said I feel like the judges in Brazil, like the judges and the positive stuff in Brazil, I feel like they kind of screwed me out of it. And I said something, and it was an article that was made in Brazil, or I guess Brazilians wanted to sue me for slander or something against they. Commission or something. Ari Hawani had sent it to me, like, yo, what's this about? I said to Ali, like, don't worry about it. Like, it's just something they're trying to get started. It's not going to go forward. Like, what do you mean? And then you see an interview they post at the MMA Junkie. But I remember the interview, I said what I said. And then I, after I also say, but I find out later the judge that scored it was American. But they post the clip, I said that, and it stopped. Like, yo, they didn't even get the whole story. And that's how I figured out how media works as well. They post stuff for clickbait. <laughs> but Corey, yeah, that Corey, is it isn't it amazing how you know some of these I don't think anybody who hasn't had fights at the high level can understand like how high these highs can be and low those lows are those things that you lose a decision somehow, split decision, they can bother you for months and you can't get rid of that out of your head, man. Um Hopefully, I know myself, sometimes you can utilize that to motivate you and make you better. You feel like you were able to do that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, after that, it was kind of like the motivation for that. Next time I go into a fight, if I'm not getting the finish, I'm going to make sure 
there's no way they can judge anybody else. Like, just yeah. make sure if I go out there, we dominate. The plan has to go out there and dominate. I never want to hurt anybody, but I want to do my job better than him to the point where not just the judge can get it wrong, but if we fought again, he would never say, I could beat him the next time. Yeah. You know, a little funny story on it, like, a little story. I never, the other thing I never mentioned in the media, Jan Blackwood. People don't notice. I beat Jan Blackwood that time we fought. So I go to Brooklyn to watch um, Derek, who fought in Brooklyn, but Derek Brunson, he fought Anderson Silva. And remember, I remember this moment because before or after that fight, me and my wife was getting ready to leave. And I hear a voice running out, Coy, 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 stop, real quick, Coy, stop. I turn around, it's John Blackwood. He comes to me and said, I just want you to know. You were the worst fight I ever had. And to this day, I have nightmares. And I never want to fight you ever again. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife was like that. She looked at me like, did he really just tell you that? And it's funny. I didn't, when we fought the second time, I didn't even bring it up because like, I can't be the one to throw dirt and bring that stuff. I just didn't even do it. But, you know, and that, in my head, I know in that fight, he was scared of getting taken down again. And I should have just made wrestled. Him better. You, you made yeah. him better. You, you made him a world champion. Yeah. Leaving that fight, there's no way he could have looked himself in the mirror probably for about the next three, four months, man. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I remember he made a post and somebody sent it to me. It was him sitting in the airport with his head all knotted up. And it translated to, I have to, re I got to go home and rethink my life is when I hit the translate on what it was. Because yeah. it was just that bad of being by a guy on short notice. He just got dominated on. And yeah. it was, it was <laughs> yeah. Well, let's keep moving forward. Let's go. Where are we at? All right, my fault, man. All right. So, Mauricio Hua, you got screwed. You lose 20 seconds of the fight, and they, they give the entire thing to him. Sean O'Connell is a bounce-back fight. But the big story here, you go from 25-8 Corey Anderson to overtime. Yeah, man. That was That's when they came out with the top – what was it? The top 10 worst nicknames in sports history, and I was number two. Yeah, 24-7, yeah, 25-8. 25-8 was number two on the list. And then another list came out of the top 10 worst MMA nicknames. I was number one. <laughs> I remarked Henry was like, bro, we can't have it. No, you got to change the name. Like, we can't. No, no more. It's too long. I don't like it no more. We changed it. And uh, this is when Eddie Alvarez getting ready to fight Conor McGregor. And the media's in there with him. And he was like, yo, how about time and a half? Because you always here working on more than everybody else. That's way too long. And then Frankie stood up and was like, overtime. Time and a half is overtime. That's the same thing. You can show That's a union guy talking. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, we can show it up to OT. Like, that's it. That's my new name, overtime. And we kept it a secret all the way into the fight. I'm like, yo, what's your nickname? Like, I'm not telling y'all until I walk out because I don't want nobody to leave. <laughs> So with Sean O'Connell and Jer Jeremy Horns in this corner, um, obviously an excellent bout for yourself. You also called out you call out uh, Nikita Krylock after that bout. Mm -hmm. Because what I was the meaning behind that? that? I wanted to it never took place, and I knew he had passed me in the rankings for fighting nobodies. He had a bunch of finishes against unranked guys. And they put him in front of me, and I was like, you know what? Let's get that. Like I won't. My spot. I want what I deserve. Like I'm out here beating top guys. If you go through all the people I fought, everybody I fought since my second fight has been ranked in the top 15, except for Sean O'Connell. You know, like I want. He's fighting unranked guys and getting ranked above me. Like I want to fight him and take his spot. 
But he went out there and he lost to Misha Kirshenoff the next night. So we fought Friday and they fought Saturday in Canada and he got choked out. Corey, do you feel like you've had to, you feel like you've had to go a tougher route sometimes because of stuff like uh Joe Silva being like, Yeah, you took him down a bunch, it was boring. So, you know, when he says stuff like that, you know he's not pushing you for stuff. You know that you feel like you've had to go a tougher route because of stuff like 100%. that. I know I took a, a tougher route, you know, because the gimmick. And when we get later in this history, we'll bring this up again where I know a hundred percent why they gave me that tougher route they told me to my face but uh it was just i wasn't a marketable guy you know just like now nah, i sit back i don't do media it's like you sitting me now i'm like in my my whatever room i don't give a damn i don't care about flashing this i don't care about i got a nice car but i don't gotta walk around and drive a nice car with jewelry all the time flashy i don't have a cameraman with me i post stuff from my phone i don't care about algorithm and all that i ain't got no media team i'm just me and they don't want that they won't be just gonna sell and make a business out of it. That's been a problem. I know what you mean, man. That go ahead, McGill. I'm sorry, because at this point, are you still on that original tough deal? Because everybody always talks about how lousy that tough deal is. You know, no, and, no. and now they took a bonus away from you. Now you took a loss. So now if you're making like 15 and 15, you got only 15. That almost hurts more than like the, the personal side, the insult, no? Yeah, I got out of the tough deal after the Tom Lawler fight, actually. But even still, we didn't get up to no big payment, you know. And that's the thing. We're talking about that again about when I, how I got to Bellator. We're bringing all of that. But I never really got a big deal. Like, we're like oh, you in the UFC making money? I never got that. And like we're talking about this when we get down. It's just, it all falls into my story. March 18, 2017. You fight UFC Fight Night main event in London against Jimmy Manawa, who's a friggin' savage. Like I said, Mark Henry told me, don't put your hands out. One way you can beat you, put your hands out. Don't put your hands out when you fake. And I did it. And there ain't much about that fight to talk about. It was, what, a million and some seconds? So can't go into that too, too much detail. <laughs> he goes to All-Star Training Center. Jan is obviously there. I mean, so... They, you are very well scouted by that gym at this point. Um, there's a big size difference. Was the jet lag bothering you too? No, I mean, at that time, I used to walk around. Up until then, I walked around at 212. I never got heavier than that. And there was a reason. Like, every night, I would make sure if I was heavier than 212, I would get up and run until I make 212. Put a song on run until I got down to weight. And I didn't understand how weight cut worked at the time, but my mindset was if I'm always at 212 – I can take a fight at any given time and make weight. I never knew about he's about to water load and do all this stuff and get big. I had never broke 219 up until that point like outside of a fight. So, and I remember Jim, that was probably the best thing that came from that fight. Jimmy Manuel came to me in the back and like, bro, bro, I was so scared to fight you because you takedown. But once we got in the cage, I saw how small you were. I knew there was nothing you could do about taking me down. You're just too small to take me down. You can be a great fighter, bro. You just got to put size on. That's the only thing I'm going to tell you. Everything about you is good and dang. You have to put size on. And my brother, he had a contract to play pro ball. He went to the combines, all that. And we got home. I flew him out. And he stayed with me for a month. And he taught me everything I need to know about lifting and putting on weight. And then I got a dietitian about how to cut weight and water load. And I went to the PI, and they taught me. And after that, it was just a different core. I came back. It's built different. Hey, Chris, is a heavyweight. This guy's never had a cut weight before. So you can see, well, you're a wrestler. What do you mean you're a cut weight? 
the heavyweight. Exactly. Yeah, I, I want to ask you, you mentioned uh, against Rua, you were kind of a little bit intimidated by the Brazilian crowd. Those British crowds could be pretty ugly, too. How was your British experience? I mean, to be honest, Britain, yeah. I knew everybody was against me. Again, I knew I was an underdog, so I expected it. But I feel like it wasn't nearly as bad as Brazil. The, root, the Shogun who were Brazil, that was probably the most disgusting and scary walkout I ever had. Let's put it this way. My coach, Ricardo Almeida, is from Brazil. Real day. <laughs> as we walked out, him and Mark Henry both got punched in the head. They grabbed their hoods and snatched them back. He said, bro, I got called some things I've never heard anybody get called. They were swinging at people on the way out, and the way they did it, like to sell as many seats as they can, usually to walk out when you walk out. It's so wild. Where you can, I got 80 in reach. I can put my hands up, and I can't even reach everybody. But then when we walked out, it was like, we was like scooting down this little aisle like this. So we getting hit. And you got people covering me to keep them getting covered. As my coaches and stuff, oh, hold on, light just died out. My coaches and stuff is getting hit. They getting grabbed. They getting bottles and stuff thrown at them. So that, like I said, that was probably the scariest walkout ever because you thinking like, yo, even if I win, I got to walk back through this crowd to get to the locker room. Am I going to make it? <laughs> And it was hot. It was probably 100 some degrees out. So as soon as we walk out, I'm already sweating, like pouring sweat. It was just, that was not a fun experience all around. Now, so, now Miguel, you know those crowds in Brazil, Brian's having people get stabbed. You don't see that happen in London too much. I mean, they might say something, but there's not riots no, happening afterwards. I, I just think that the, the British fans are like, you know, you take into account like like their their soccer hooligan fans and stuff, and they'll throw down. The British fans will are not shy about letting you know who they want to fight. That's all I'm saying. It's different, yeah. but I guess okay. the language so you're asking. In Brazil, a lot of those fans are poor. So they're looking for a reason to ride and ride. <laughs> so as for Britain, those people are most of those people are very wealthy. They just drunk and rowdy. As for Brazil, they weren't even drunk. They just broke. <laughs> and looking for a reason to start a fight and get some stuff. So, yeah. so Corey, in essence, Brazil, they're chanting, you're going to die. In London, they're swinging Sweet Caroline. Yeah. So they can all do the, you know, the chorus together. Okay. Yeah, they it's all hear they guy on Super Hot. They booing me, of course, but it's not like, nothing <laughs> like yeah. All right. Talk about locker room bonuses. Patrick Cummins gets a staff infection. They need a last-minute replacement for Ovich St. Preux. This gentleman steps up again. Is this the third last-minute for Joe Silva? No, this is actually the opposite. I was supposed to fight Pat. Pat got stabbed, and OSP stepped in for Pat. Chris, on, this Mike. is your fault. Go, you're better this than that, This is your Mike. fault, Chris. Chris, you've been absent for a couple podcasts. This is your fault. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> hey, funny story on that, too. I just did an event. Three weeks ago in Wyoming at Six Hour Hunter Games, and one of the girls, celebrity guests out there, it was actually Pat Cummins' girlfriend at the time. And she comes up and tells me, like, I think you know my boyfriend, my ex-boyfriend, Pat Cummins. And I was the reason he had to pull out of your fight. Like, what? Like, remember he had a staph infection? Well, she had did naked and afraid. And she got a staph infection when she was on the show. And when she came home, she gave it to Pat. And well, he I had to pull out of the fight. She told me that she was like, she didn't even make eye contact for a while. Are you fucking kidding me? So the reason I got head kick knocked out was you. <laughs> <laughs> but that was funny. It's crazy. Like, what, five years later, the girl that gave him the 
the affection. We do an event together. She comes up and tells me. That's that funny. Cool, that is good. There was a big size difference between the two of you as well. So you weren't really putting the weight on yet. I mean, it was it was huge. As we are, we weighed the same. He just carried yeah. it different. And we both weighed 222. And you know, he just carried it different to me. He just was a thick guy. We had trained together, training conditioning, training what, like two fights prior to that. And we weighed both was 230. He was 236, I was 235. And even they said it there, like, he's just, his build is a football player, and I was built like a wrestler. Like, he just looked like he was so much bigger all the time. I just looked like I was always cut up, like I was dehydrated. He was explosive, but again, I always had cardio. So we knew that was going to be a thing going in there. And like I said, he looked way bigger than me, but we got on scale before. And after we went and got drinks, and I asked him, like, what you weigh? Like 222? Like, I was 222 before we stepped in, too. Like, it's, it's size different. Sometimes it looks that way. I'm going to try this one more time. One more time, Chris. Patrick Good. Cummins, you get you don't take a single punch. You get through him. You landed 12 takedowns. Ilir Latifi. Is injured. You fill in last minute for a Hamburg Germany fight. Am I right on this one? That one's you right. There you go, Mike. That was, another, that was another one within two weeks, and that one that was a now that was I was two thirty six when I took that fight. Smashed. I just ate oh eighty one pieces of sushi, a burger, and chugged two big old tall boys, and it took the fight probably five seconds later. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> this is Glover Teixeira, future world champion, your second that's on your resume. Um, Glover Teixeira, let's keep in mind, he's always known for being a striker, you know, great nail, give one to take one. At this point, he's also got a win over Dean Lister in ADCC. Glover Teixeira is legit. Yeah, he, yeah, he, I mean, he was the scary guy in the division for a long time, and he trained. He's a boogeyman, like being a really smart fighter too, and you know, a guy with a world of experience. So, you know, th this this was definitely a feather in your cap. But what was fighting him like? Was he still waiting mm -hmm. to improve to be champion, or was he at the top of his game? What do you think? Oh, I think he's the top of his game. What people didn't know is the reason I took that fight. The day before, I just found out my wife was pregnant with our first shot. So <laughs> I, I was ready to get back in and prove something. Like, now I got a whole other reason to live for. Like, I got my first child coming. I'm ready to do it. You know, I'm doing it for him now. And uh, I remember I was out there corner somebody at PFL. My manager was there. Like, I saw friends eating. I'm drinking. I'm smashing food and drinking beer. Like, I don't care. I'm just having a good time. I hear him on the phone. Like, what you mean, Lear out? The fight's in two weeks. We gotta find somebody. I'm sitting there drinking my beer. I'm just like, me and he's like, he keeps blurring. What are you talking? Dude, what? He got a phone. What are you talking about? That's why you eat two burgers. You said you ate sushi. You smashing beer. There's no way you're ready for a fight in two weeks against Glover. I'm like, yo, give me the fight. I'm ready. Just give me the contract. Like, give me a contract and go. I call Mark Henry. Like, yo, Mark, what you got? What y'all think? Like at this point, I signed a contract. Like, so what you think about if I fought Glover on two weeks? No. Like, bro, bro, you just got knocked out. Like. Less than a year ago, I think he's a heavy hitter. I don't think that's a good fight to take on two weeks' notice. We need time to train. Like, oh, well, I already signed a contract, so we got to be in Germany like a week. Can you make it? He's like, bro, why did you got to scale that? Like, you know we're going to follow you anywhere, but why? Like, all right, as long as you're going to be there, I'm talking to you later. Call Ricardo. Same thing. Like, brother, brother, you're a monster, but I don't like that fight. Two weeks' notice, we got a week to train and we got to leave. I don't like that. Like, oh, I already took the fight, so you're coming tonight. 
<laughs> I got in front of him. And the other one was Nick and Tom. And I remember Nick was like, oh, Nick couldn't make it. He was uh, having his baby that week or something. Like, I don't think I can make it. And she's due, blah, blah. I remember him telling my wife she was the GM at Nicotona's gym. He was like, bro, I don't like this fight in court. Like, two weeks notice, this and this. And they just all thought, on two weeks notice, like, it was going to be tough because my game plan is wrestling. He's a super good jujitsu guy. And like I said, I went out there and I told him, like, this guy can't hold water to me. Coach, trust me. I'm going to go out here and show y'all what I can do. I'm going to dominate this guy on two week notice. The worst weight cut in my life. I didn't think we was going to make weight. And I still went out there and did what I did. Nice. You were ending your combinations with an uppercut, which gave him fits throughout the entire fight. Mm-hmm. Did you see something on film? Yeah, I guess I studied film so I know what you're going to do before you do it. And if you go back to the fight with Alexander Gustafson, every time Gustafson hit him clean, was it an uppercut? And the reason why, because lower again, he does like Mike Tyson talk about. I fight like Mike Tyson. He does this, this, and this. And we throw a punch, he dipped down to come up with something. So every time I know if I threw a combo and he slipped, if I don't hit him, when he goes a dip before he throw, if I throw an uppercut, he's gonna duck down into it. And every time my clockwork, boop, finish it uppercut. Because every time I would finish, he would dip like he's gonna throw something, like I uppercut time or a knee. And that's how this happened. The finger. Oh shit. I kept doing <laughs> the uppercut until my tendon ruptured on his chin. But like every time I threw it, it landed. And it just happened to land clean one time. I felt my whole finger just it felt like something shattered. Tended to rip right when I <laughs> Damn. That looks like you're throwing gang signs, bro. You gotta be yeah, careful with that. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh Ily the Tifi All-Star Training Center, your third opponent from that gym. Do you think they're asking for you? No, that was another one. It was uh so the way that happened because Lear was supposed to fight Glover. And when I signed that fight, they accidentally sent me his contract and just changed the number. And I seen in there, like, if he was to win, he would get the next title shot. Whoever won that was going for a title next. So I started making a fit about it. Like, well, if he was getting title, I don't want a title. I just beat number three. Why don't I get a title shot? He should cross this name out, wrote yours, and send it back. Yeah, I should have, huh? Well, no, they, they did. They changed my name. They put my name in the number change, but they left all his details in there because it was so fast. So, like, first class flights, three hotel rooms for the coaches and stuff, all that. Like, yeah, like I'm I'm loving this. For the next contract, they sent all that was going. Like, no, 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 no. This contract I signed for my next three fights, it says this. It was a whole new contract for new numbers. So they had to honor that. Then they told me, well, that wasn't technically your deal. That was Lear's deal. We've got to change. Like, that's not my fault. Like, this is what I signed. I want the same thing. But so I made this whole fit. Like, yo, he was going to win. Why can't I get Like, well, since he was right there next to it, if you beat a little TV, well, let's make you fight a little TV if you're a title. And we both, both were managed by Ali. And Ali was like, only way they fight is if the winner gets a title shot. That's the only way I'm doing it. If he, that's what Ali told me. The only way I'm letting you guys fight is a title shot. So we do it. I win. And you can tell what happened next. That I didn't fight for the title. <laughs> you got 11 months off after this. Yay. Yikes. I, I got a, a quick question, though. Like, all right, you, so they sent you the wrong contract, and you know you you can, but you went to Brazil to fight a main event against the Brazilian. You went to England to fight a main event against a British guy. Now you're in Europe fighting a main event against a European guy. It's like people ask for more money just for that. It's like, are you trying to negotiate? Or you because if not, then why are they treating you that way? Is the question. You know what I mean? Like I said, we're gonna get there. The story going. 
Almost there. This is how you build suspense. These guys, they're amateurs, man. They don't know how this works. Hey, I know he's the guy at the movie. He's the guy at the movie theater way with the end. Like, yo, what's gonna happen? Time will tell. Thank you, Corey Anderson. We gotta keep you around. Maybe for the next interview, too. <laughs> All right. So you take 11 months off. What's happening in these 11 months that's keeping you from the cage? We kind of negotiate something. Like I said, we already said, you told me the last two fights, if I won, the one concept I win, he gets tired of shot. The next one, if I beat this guy, I get tired of shot. Or at least a fight that's going to move me in the right direction. And it was like, yo, like I'm trying to get tired of fight, but they're doing everything they can to keep me from getting tired of fight or getting a fight that move up. So, Even though it was in the contract, they didn't want to honor it because it wasn't mine. It was, but then, like I said, we're gonna get to that in this kind of in this level. Right, here we go. All come through. So I'm gonna talk through it. So we're going through. I'm like, yo, we want this, we want that, and then you see the fight that's gonna come. You're gonna talk about is in the same name they've been giving me since I beat Little Chief. This kid just got in the UFC, wasn't even ranked. I'm like, yo, I just beat the number three, the number three, and the number five, and you want me to go fight a kid unranked? Instead of Johnny Walker. Yeah, like that makes no sense. Like, I'm not fighting the unranked kid. I didn't know who he was. I'm not fighting my unranked kid. Not doing it. So they kept saying, well, they kept sending me a contract literally every day. I would get a contract from Amy, whatever her name is, was the same name. Every day, I would decline, 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 decline. If you remember, you go back and you check the media, they asked, like, is Corey Anson going to get title fight or what? And they said, no, my people said Corey Anson or dodged 100 fights, turned out 100 fights. Why would he get a title shot? And I go on the media and say, like, it wasn't 100 fights. It was one guy 100 times. That's just like saying with your boys all summer, like, yo, I was smashing mad females all summer, bro. But you hit one girl for all three months. And you coming back, you telling a lie on my name. Like, Ali, tell the truth. Who did he send me for 11 months straight? It was one name. It wasn't 100 guys. I'm not fighting an unranked guy. And then that's when Hunter Campbell finally reaches out. Like, I didn't even know Hunter Campbell existed. I go to his office, and I'm sitting there, what is it? This guy walk out, like, how you doing, Corey? I'm Hunter Campbell. I'm actually, like, one of the top guys at attorney, this, this, and that. So I want to talk to you about what's going on and why you're not fighting. And like, because it makes no sense. I fight this kid. I'm not getting any more money. The kid's not going to do anything for me. I beat him. I move nowhere. Like, yeah, well, the thing is, he's, like, the hottest thing we have right now. And if he beats you, we're giving him a title fight. And I said, okay, but if I beat him, what happens next? And we can't say. I was like, so I guess I would fight? And like, more than likely not. But if you beat him, we can get some of the attention on you, build your social media, and work yourself to a title fight. Because the way we're in this, we're in this business to make money. And like I'll tell you right now, every Tuesday we have a meeting of who are the best fights to make and who can be who. And we cannot deny that you are next in line and the, probably, probably the best match for John Jones right now. But the one thing we say is when we check social media, your social media just doesn't click. It doesn't give us enough fire to sell a fight. So we can't give you a title fight until we get your social media. So we feel if you fight Johnny Walker being the hottest thing it is right now, if you beat him, you get some followers. And if he beats you, he gets a title fight. And either way, it makes me like, yo, you really telling me this in my face? Like, that's some, that's some, I'm not here for fame. I'm not here for money. I just want to be the best. Like, unfortunately, Mr. Anderson, this is a business about putting butts in the seats. If you can't do that, we just can't give you the title fight.
And I remember leaving that office and I told Ali, like, you know what? They want me to fight this kid. I'm going to knock this kid to F out in one round. And I'm going to tell them right then, it makes no sense. I met Mick Maynard in Texas. He's like, Corey, I know you don't want this fight, but it's like, it's the only fight we're going to give you. If you keep turning down, we're going to make you sit for a year. And when you come back, we still are going to make you fight him again. So you might as well take this fight. You have to take this fight or you're just going to be sitting for a while. I said, I admit, it makes no sense. I'm going to take it, but it makes no sense. If you remember, I knocked Johnny Walker out and I flicked the crowd off and do all that. But the first person I gave the middle finger to was Mick Maynard and all the UFC people sitting cage side and told him, I told y'all, it made no sense for me to fight this kid. I told you, I would knock him out in one round and nothing's going to happen. And the crowd was booing me because they were cheering for him, a Brazilian in New York when I trained across the street. So I stood up and flicked all him off. It was it was pandemonium. It was all bad. But, <laughs> yeah, after that, my social media grew. And they still didn't give us how to fight. It was, it was yeah. Well, so, you you also got fined for pushing a referee afterward. Like, you well, wanted to murder Johnny Walker. That, it wasn't just a no, win. That was, was, <laughs> that was one of the five things they fined me for. They fined me for excessive celebration, yelling in my opponent's face, jumping on the cage, flicking off the crowd, and laying hands on the ref. And Please. to be honest, the only thing I do not remember was laying hands on the ref until, like, two weeks later when I finally watched the fight and saw what everybody was talking about. Everybody was like, yo, that snap down was crazy. Like, what are they talking about? Like, when I pulled his head down, I hit him with the uppercut? My wife was like, no, you pulled the ref down. Like, what? And she showed him, like, you didn't know? I was swinging at John, like, telling him, like, get the on my face. And Kevin McDonald was in between me and him. And I didn't even see him there. So when I went like this, my hand cuffed the back of his head, and it snaps him down <laughs> to the ground. And instantly... I hit every ref I know to get Kevin McDonald's email contact. And I write him an email, apologizing. Let him, I didn't even know I touched you. I completely apologize. He's like, I understand you was in the moment. This is and that. And then New York contacted me and my manager called me. Come to find, I guess Kevin McDonald is the one that pressed the fine. He the one that wanted me fine, they said. I was like, yo, like, I, I was in a, an emotional space. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, you so could rough the rest of the night. You know, yeah, he wasn't injured. But since he asked me to get fined, they had to put all the other stuff on there as well. And they charged me 10 grand. It was, yeah. Hey, man, people don't understand. When, when you got that adrenaline going, like you have an interview, you look like you're like a out of your body looking at yourself. Like, who is that talking? You don't remember anything you do. It's let low. I can see pushing somebody down and not even realize that that happens, man. You're on a different planet. When that adrenaline's going. And I cannot believe they actually try to find you for getting on top of the cage. Everybody in the world does it every single time they fight. I didn't know anybody could get fined for that. That's real. Yeah, they find like I said, the reason it all started because I touched Kevin McDonald, but since they pressed that, they had to throw everything else in there as well as reasons why the fine was so high. It was crazy. Damn. In New Jersey. And how much how much money have you find? How much money have you find does Kevin get? I have no clue. Uh, Did he get any? Zero. Zero. Is the New Jersey commissioner? I knew him well because I cornered the New Jersey fights every other weekend. And he called me. He was like, "Corey, I'm gonna tell you right now. Like, I know they give you the option to fight this, but I've already talked to them. I tried to tell them that was not Corey Anderson. He was on an emotional high. Don't hold it against this kid. But what they said is he's got to pay for what he did. And pretty much what that that mean is." They just trying to get some money out of you, bro. So wow. no matter what you do, if you fight, he's like, you go to court, you try to fight it at the end of the meeting or whatever, 
they just gonna double up the fine. So just pay that ten thousand and leave it alone. I was like, yeah, but all right. And Limbo's good dude. Nick Limbo's good people, man. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't gonna put his name out there because I ain't want them to know, but thanks. Limbo's good dude. <laughs> <laughs> just snitched the mouth. Now they know like he got your snitching on him. February 15th, you get a rematch against Jan Blakovich. Mm. Now, don't, don't tell me that this is now finally winner gets a title shot. Yes. This is, this is it. Oh, this is the fight. Uh, no, I'm reading that took it. Look, now I said no. I said, I deserve a title fight, right? My manager called me and said, brother, I'm going to be honest. Like, there's nobody else left. But if you don't take this fight, I'm telling you, they're going to take Jan. They're going to make him fight one more time. If he get another win, they're going to say he has more wins than you, and they're going to make him fight for the title. So, oh, wait, hold up, hold up. Do you think John Jones was also lobbying not to fight, fight you at this point? I think so. I, I, I mean, they do everything they can to appease him. I, I don't I know where people, this is coming from. I knew people from his camp that would let me know why he did not want to fight you, bro. It's like he knows, like you. He don't want to fight you. That's the one fight he doesn't want to fight is you. He's gonna try to fight everybody. He don't want to fight you. So it is what it All is. Right. I don't know if that's something he said. He would just believe, it, but that's the things I was hearing through the grapevine. Floyd, when Floyd Patterson was the world heavyweight champion, there was a guy named Sonny Liston that was just murking everybody. And, and Patterson was such a popular guy. He's like, nope, he's too big. He's too big. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. He, Sonny Liston literally cleaned up the entire division, much like Chuck Liddell did for Tito Ortiz. And then they would just kind of give the scraps to the champ, making them look good. And when you describe it and we run down what's taking place with you, and John Jones was kind of a protected champion. And you are the person that did that for him. This thing about this, the thing about the people that got the title fight when I was fighting these top guys. You got Anthony Smith, who fought Shogun Hula on like a four-fight losing skid. Rashad Evans, his last fight before he lost. I know for Rashad, my boy. But after that, Rashad retired because he had lost five in a row. And I think he beat one other person that had a win and they gave him a title fight. Then it was that uh, the Silver Marasa kid, uh, he fighting uh, uh, Jamil Hill in a couple weeks or whatever. He fought, he beat Jan, but then he beat Eric or Eric Anderson, 85 pounder, and another 85er, Kevin Holland. He beat Kevin Holland, Eric Anderson, both of them are 85ers that came up on short notice and met him at heavyweight or 205. Then he beat Jan Blackwood, and they gave him a title fight. But I beat Glover, Larry Latifi, Pat Cummins, Johnny Walker, and they keep telling me I don't deserve a title fight. And it's like, I even told him, like, I beat all ranked guys, and every one of these guys beat none ranked guys. They get title fights. Like, well, they're sounds exciting, and they got a good media push. Like, well, you guys pushing them on social media. It's not my fault you don't market me. It was like you said, protected champion at the time, whatever. So, Corey, is there any time at this point when you're going, man? I need to fight my contract out and beat and get out of here, man. I need to go to Bellator. I need to go someplace else because. These guys are never going to take care of me. Is that ever in your thought process yet? Well, this started to come after the Yon fight. So that was the second Yon fight. Not losing, but I lose. I ended up in the hospital with health issues and all this other stuff. And um, at the time, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm sitting there, I see my son. At the time, I have my son. My son from the hospital, he visited me. I look at my wife, and I tell her, I can't keep doing this anymore. 
She think I mean fighting. And I'm talking about no, I'm not fight. I can't fight the battle. I'm fighting for more. I'm fighting the crowd, trying to freeze the crowd. I'm always trying to like, yo, I beat this guy, I beat that guy. I did this, I deserve this, I should get this. I'm fighting this argument on social media every day. And then I'm fighting my opponent. So I'm fighting three people before I even get into the cage. I told Man, her, I that's so it. intelligent. That's so yeah. intelligent. I told her, I can't do this anymore. She's like, what do you mean? Like, I'm in this position. Like, I mean, like, in the hospital bed where I am because of all of this. Like, I'm not happy anymore. Like, I don't love the game. It went from... I took her all day. To this day, I got a voicemail on my phone of Dana White when I first got in the UFC. But when I started learning the politics and how it worked, and I started saying I need more money, or like if a short notice fight would come up when I was ranked 10th, he would still call against the guys I'm ranked. Like, you want to fight this guy on two notice? They would call me, like, nah, I'm cool. I don't need to take that fight. Like, I'm not fighting somebody not ranked. And then that's when everything, and also when John Jones failed his drug test. That's when it all really started because I had my he wife. He was pulsating, Corey. He was pulsating. Yeah. She was 30 months pregnant. 30, yeah, 30 weeks pregnant. We flew to Vegas together. When I got there, mm. they was like, oh, we need to fly you on another jet to L.A. for the fight. But we can't fly your wife with you. What do you mean you can't take my wife with me? Like, your wife has to stay in Vegas. Like, fucking crazy. She's 30 weeks pregnant. Where I go, she go. If she ain't going, I ain't fighting. And like, you think we're going to make all this happen because John Jones failed another drug test because he cheated? I got to make things up? Like, nah, not happening. I'm going to leave my wife in time because of some cheater. And I voice my opinion to the media, and I'm the only one to voice my opinion to the media. So everybody think oh, it's just me against the UFC, and everybody else is like, oh, it's okay. I'm okay with going to California. But behind closed doors, everybody knocking on my hotel room like, yo, we love what you said, but we don't want to get in trouble, so we ain't going to say it. Like, get the fuck away from my door, you know? Like, I don't care if you ain't going to speak. Don't come to me. You want me to say it for you. And that's when everything turned because UFC thought it was just me. So they media come to my door. Like, Yo, you want to do the media? But like, I'm done. I said what I got to say. And ever since then, it was really down. Because now <laughs> I'm fighting this battle against John Jones. Me and John Jones beefing now. I got Dana White them talking about me. I got the media talking about me because Dana said this. So everybody like, oh, well, Dana said Corey did this. So it has to be true. And now I'm fighting the fans too. So it's well, well Corey. Let me kind of put this in perspective for everybody. Jeff Nowinski, head of USADA, for works for the UFC. They say no, they contract USADA. He works for the UFC. He spent five years of his life going through Lance Armstrong's garbage after Lance Armstrong finished his final race with Tour de France. Finishes next five years, he's doing garbage collection. And if he found a picogram in that garbage, which he found in the veins of John Jones, it would have been a press release and he would have been a national hero in his own eyes. At this point, works for the UFC, he goes and defends a guy that he knows is using designer steroids. It's not tainted supplements. It's not, no, no, no. You put, he worked with the, you know, he worked with the commission in order to kind of alleviate the issues and, he never ratted on a fighter. He ratted on a scientist. That's what happened. I mean, allegedly. Saying, so, I said well, allegedly. What you're, saying, what you're saying is pretty much true because I know people yeah. went inside. When I left, they would call me and tell me everything because I was no longer there. I heard things and they told me it all. Like I said, when I left, everything came clear to what was going on. And it was pretty, everything you say, and it's true. So it's like, he literally Corey. did cheat, but we had to cover it up in order for the fight to go, because it was John Jones. 
All you got to do is read between the lines. Nobody told me this. It's just look at it. That's exactly what happened. Now, man, they pulled off a successful event. They did it. Congratulations. Yeah, but at what cost, man? I mean, at what cost? Everybody there knows. I mean, they. If anybody else on any card, except for maybe Conor McGregor, if anybody else did something like that, you're you're suspended. Not let alone they're not moving whole damn card to a different state. That's that's the worst thing I've ever seen the UFC did. I mean, I lost a lot for them when they did that. I'm like, man, you would yeah. do that for nobody else. And, to make, and and on everything else, you would think you'd be bending over, kissing people's ass, be like, hey, uh, your, your wife flew out of here. Let's fly. Let's get them on our private jet and fly them over there. Not saying, well, you got to foot on bill yourself. You got to pay for your own way out to California. What? You know how many, man, that's was, a, you know how many fighters wives drove like a rental car and drove over there? I was not letting my wife drive. They're like, oh, she can ride with me. Like, no, she can't. She's riding with me on this plane. And I remember when all this happened, like we couldn't wait. Before we leave, we cut way at the P.I. So months before this fight, they call and say, yo, you make your schedule now. When you get here, whatever you signed up for is what you got. It's my final weight cut. At this time, I'm walking around like 225, 230 day before weigh-in. So I'm going to go do my final cut. I'm on my way in an Uber in the UFC PR. They call me like, Mr. Anson, you're on your way? Like, yeah. Like, sorry, you had to turn around and go back. What you mean? Like, this is my set time to work out. Like, you got to work cut weight at the hotel. Like, what do you mean? Like, well, John Jones just showed up. He said he wanted the gym shut down for him so nobody else is allowed in the building. Are you fucking so one this guy cheats? So tomorrow morning we all gotta catch the flight out. Now he didn't even schedule his workout, he just shows up and I gotta possibly miss weight because he's gonna close on the one. Like we're sorry, and this is literally what they said when they hung up. We're sorry, Mr. Anderson, but it's John Jones. They hung up the phone. And that is when I realized that was the moment I realized that everybody else here is just a number. And unless you making numbers and selling something, you do not have a name to the organization. And that's when I started feuding and I started going to the media. This was the last time I did fight media because everything I was doing was air out all the dirty laundry I knew and all the stuff. I was angry. I had all this pent up energy. That's when I wanted to let, let everybody know exactly what was going on. And after all that got out, it was like, now I'm at peace. I don't even want to do nothing like this. And this is the first time I've literally since any I've talked about any of that, but I'm only doing it because Chris and I the gym. Help you guys come on the podcast. If one of my boys want to jump on, I'm gonna jump on. And this just happened to be the layout of the podcast. So here we are. Well, let's let's kind of keep in mind that we appreciate that, Corey, because you are a very private person. TJ Dillashaw trains at Team Alpha Male. Now, this is not me projecting or forecasting. They said publicly, Yeah, we've been telling Usada for months that he's been using EPO, except it's not on their panel. They had to call the athletic commission to get the athletic commission to pop TJ Dillashaw. Like USADA never caught him. And EPO spikes your cardio. It puts it through the roof. If you, if you watch the Reyes fight with John Jones and you watch the championship rounds, his cardio continues to improve. You got a multiple time offender. I'm guessing still not being tested for EPO because the test is too expensive. That's what Jeff Nowinski said. It's too expensive to include that test. Well, how about if you've got a multiple-time offender? You can't include it with him? It's just, it's not, it's not real. It's just, it's not real. It's really not, but here's what it is. Here's what it is. So you're split so, with the UFC. Yeah, or, or, you, or you're pop for adjusting your title fights, you know? Yeah. But not yeah. even that. John's exempt no matter what, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah. So, so is it at this time you're like, you know what? It's time for us to part ways, and then you decide to start going. Bill, is that is that when this happens? I mean, oh, okay. this relationship ever. You ain't hanging out with Dana and watching football on you know New Year's Day, and that ain't happening. All right. So this is where everything starts getting sick. I get out of the hospital. I get my health back. I start going to train with DC. I'm helping DC train. And this is like where I'm starting to realize more about my athleticism, how good I am. I'm training with DC. Like he tells me right then, like bro, I'm gonna say right now, there's only one person in this the in this world that I've trained with that can go five to six rounds with me straight and don't need a break. And that's Cam Velasquez. And now you the second person. So what does that say about you? Wow. You're like, you are that good, but you don't believe. So I'm gonna say right now, as a commentator, I see it. The only reason you lose fights is because you get greedy and you get caught. He said, you you should not be getting caught. You should not. He tells me everything I'm doing wrong. He talks to me, and it started making sense. He's right. And I come back out and help him get another fight. And at this point, I've signed a contract to fight Nikita Karloff. Like, I called him out years ago. They finally get some fight against him. But then all of a sudden, and I signed. I was ready to come back and get back in the wing column. And then, again, I just got down with these health issues. I'm talking to my wife. And, again, I'm making peanuts compared to what people make. Now, I'm just airing out right now. I was making 70 and 7 on my 15th UFC fight to fight Nikita Krylov. But when I go back out to D.C. on the flight, I look up and I see some time. It was uh, Gerald Rosenstrom, whatever his name is. He was in his fifth fight. He was making, like, 130 and 130 or something, that's it. And that's just what they disclosed with me. He's probably making more. And as I land, I'm starting to think, like, yo, What's going on? So I asked DC. I tell him how much I or no, his coach asked him, how much you make? And I'm like, I'm making 70 and 70. And they laugh. I'm like, yeah, you know for his first fight in UFC, he, I think he got like a hundred and a hundred. Like, wait, this is my 15 fight I'm making that. So I, I I go ahead, I go to ask, like, yo, can we get a little more money or something? And then I asked my manager that. And it just so happened, like the next day, I'm signing a fight in the key to Krylov. Also, he's hurt. I just signed a contract two days ago. Oh, he just got hurt, just so you know. But we got this other kid who wanted to fight, Jerry Prohachi. He <laughs> hadn't even fought yet. He hadn't even fought yet. We wanted you to fight him now. Well, he's got, about, he's got about 30 fights outside of the UFC, and he's, at the time, the biggest, best fighter outside of the UFC. Yeah. And obviously, that like, world champion. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, yo, I'm not fighting these no. I told you, I'm only fighting guys with rank, blah, blah. I, I, okay, I'll fight him, but y'all got to give me a little bit more money or something. You're not getting nothing. It's you a UC debut. Yeah, like you either taking this contract or we're going to sit you for a year. And when you come back, you're going to fight him again. And that's when I talked to my manager. I was like, yo, is there anything else we can do? Like, I'm tired of playing these games. Like, just let me think about this for a while. He called me next day. Like, boy, I can tell, like, I've been talking to you and you just haven't been to Corey Anderson. You used to be anymore. You don't seem happy no more. He said, I feel like you don't really want to be here. You feel like it's going to be an uphill battle anymore. He said, now, do you want to leave the UFC? He said, like, I can figure something out. But he was like, we can stay. It's going to be a tough road probably back for your title fight. But you can get there. I know you're the best in the world. But if you don't care about the fame anymore, you want to make money. I think you, if you want more money, I think we can make you more money somewhere else possibly. Do you want to get out? I was like, yeah. I think it's time, bro. I just think the end of my road is here. It's just I'm fighting an uphill battle. The promotion don't like me. The president don't like me. The fans don't like me. It's like it's just it's, it's not going to end well for me. Like I'm a, feel like I'm going to go back to where I was in South Carolina. 
where I just don't care anymore. I'm start drinking and doing stuff that's not me. Like, let's just let's, local. Like, let's just get out of here before it gets to a super dark area, and I just I don't want to go there. And literally, I get off the phone with Ali, and it wasn't sixty seconds to one hundred twenty seconds later, my email go off. I got a release form from the UFC, and that fast, I knew what my Whoa. value. Was. 15 fights. I was ranked fourth in the world right then. And they released me within 60 seconds of me saying, I want to just start over. And I knew, like, they just, they never cared. And that's when I realized this isn't, it wasn't the fight game anymore. It was the fight business. But they didn't care about me. It was about what's going to make them. And at that point, I talked to DC. He said, bro, you got a second kid coming. You got to start worrying about what's going to make money for Corey Anderson. So, yeah, I love UFC. UFC made me a millionaire. But they might not ever make you a millionaire. You got to go somewhere where you can make the most for your family. The UFC belt, I know this is you're addicted to. It's a beautiful thing. Trust me. I got it. It's beautiful. But that belt will never pay for your kid's career, your kid's future, and everything else. Because you need to worry about making money. So now is the time. You're going to sit down with the manager. And you figure out what you can do best for Corey Anderson and his family. And like the Lord, I'm, I read my Bible. I go to church every Sunday. And the Lord must be looking down on me because within, like, within the next three hours, I got a call from Mike Kogan at Bellator with numbers I didn't even think was possible. Like, yo, what? Wait, what? You like, is that like my first I'm gonna get after my contract? I'm like, no, that's just your first fight. Like, so hold on, wait. Like, yeah, and you're gonna go up by ten thousand on both. Like, hold on, wait, hold on, wait, wait. So you're telling me I'm gonna make more to weigh in than I ever made in my UFC career with a bonus and everything else? And I was like, pretty much to be offering you send me a contract right now. <laughs> I made more so of my first fight to weigh in to fight Melvin Manhood than I ever did in all my UFC fights with bonuses and everything else. Just to weigh in. That's not even counting my win bonus. And that's more than just a single. That's like a double more than I made. So when people talk all that trash, like Corey got cut. No, Corey left on his own. And now he's getting paid for his work. Do you think that the release so fast by Ali, do you think he maybe could have leveraged it with Bellator? I mean, obviously, he did a good job on that contract, but there was obviously some pushback by the UFC. Because a lot of times what people would do is at the end of the contract, they'll start negotiating because there's a bidding war. But you left the UFC, made the announcement, and then got a Bellator contract. Kind of hurts your leverage. I'm not sure if... It doesn't sound like it. Yeah, maybe like when we got released, Ali started calling and shopping around, and just telling him like just doing his job, getting as most he could. And the first email I saw was a Bellator one. I don't think I know we didn't go to one because my coaches didn't want to go over to Singapore anymore. They had to. They go there for Eddie Alvarez, and I don't know what else is out there or whatever. But like I said, when those numbers came from what I was making, I could have probably made even more. I probably could have negotiated more. But what I'm making now, like I have no complaints. Like I, yeah, I think that that's probably more like 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 NBA <laughs> yeah. free agency, like where, yeah. like they announce that NBA free agency starts it on a day, and then that day everybody's got their contract signed. Ali was probably working behind the scenes, new UFC kind of writing on the wall, and had the Bellator thing lined up. That's my guess. And like I said, when I got out, I was in the gym. I signed. I got the release before we started practice. About an hour after practice, we're heading back to DC's house, and I get that 
go to it. I see how much they're offering. I ain't even test the waters. Like I called Eddie Alvarez, and even he said, "Like, bro, that's life changing money." I told DC, "That's life changing money," and it was like, I can't remember DC or Eddie, but one of them was like, "I'm gonna tell you right now, the two dudes who just fought for the title in the UFC, they ain't even make that money." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, let's go. It's life changing. It's time to make some real bread." Good for you. Yeah. What, what was your experience like with the Joe Rogan uh, going on? Uh, JRE. Oh, Joe was cool. I mean, I went on there to talk hunting. He wanted me on there to talk fighting. But at the end, we got to talk both. But Joe was a good guy. You know, he always talked social media because we shared an archery and hunting background and all that. So he always posted on my hunting pictures and shooting my archery and my bow. He had to hit me up one night, like one o'clock in the morning. Hit me up, like, yo, uh, what do you got? I can't remember the date. What do you got planned for this day? Like, nothing. Like, do you want to come on and do the podcast? Joe Rogan actually asked him to be on it. And I went out and had a blast. We shot the bow. We talked for like three and a half hours. And at the time, I remember this guy said he hasn't did a three-hour podcast with anybody in a long time. This is the first time. So I mean he really enjoyed it because yeah. you go in there, nobody's in there but me, him, and the guy working the computer. Everybody else is out locked behind closed doors. So they don't know what's going on. So we come out like, yo, y'all was in for three and a half hours. Like, y'all must have had a really good talk. He hasn't done that. Did that help your social media? Oh, yeah. I mean, it helped me more on the hunting side than the fighting side, to be honest. Chris, line this dude up with, with one of them local hunters, man. He's in Indianapolis now. You got to take care of him. Bro, I've man. never hunted in my life. Who am I going to hook him man, up with? Man, you better call I'll, some I'll talk people. I'll handle this for you. I'll handle this for you. Know, call, call your people, call. man. It ain't what you know, it's who you know. I'm realizing that in the last two weeks, I landed two places to hunt off of who I know. I was going knocking door to door, and it wasn't getting me anywhere. Everybody was like, oh, somebody already hunt here. Oh, sorry, son, somebody already hunt here. I mentioned two people. One was a cop. He lives on a farmer's property. The farmer's like hunt there. And the other was my buddy. His father or his stepfather owns hunting land up in Anderson or something. And I went up there today. He's like, yeah, you can hunt. It's like I said, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So right. now, if you know a farmer or some old redneck with some hunting land, put my name in his ear, please. I'm on me. it. I'm on it. <laughs> I give you some deer. Everything I kill, I give you some. I'm about to <laughs> Go. Chris? Hey, Corey, it's been a fantastic show. I mean, I, I appreciate you being honest and just saying everything. That's what you do. We know that. Um uh, you know, like I said, honor to have you around, man. Uh, just a hardworking guy, and um, man, it's just uh, cool to have you around. So, thank you for all your time, energy, effort, and just keep doing what you do, man. Proud of you. Thank you, guys, for having me on, man. I just it was a pleasure come over here to talk about it again. But it's always good just to let the they said the truth will let you free. So, when you lay it out, it always feels good, and I can just air out everything I held in for so long. Even though, like I said, I haven't talked about this since I left the UFC, but even now, I'm still getting that same sense of relief. Like, as I'm letting it out, it's like a therapy session. Happy for you, man. You controlled your own destiny. That's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. All right. Have a good one. I'll see you soon. Well, Mike, we got Corey Anderson in the books. And uh, fascinating stuff, man. I like, I like when we got active guys that we interviewed, too, because they have a little bit of a different edge and stuff. And this was a, a, a new guy for me. I didn't know him, so had a lot of fun. Uh, getting to know him, a real down to earth, like like him right away kind of guy. Well, 
you see how personable he is, and it kind of boggles your mind how somebody like that can get lost in the mix. Like you immediately, you immediately want to be his friend. He gives you, you ask a question. He gives you depth and volume. You know, he, he meets your need. And like, if he's at a party, you know, whether he's talking to you or not, he's connecting with somebody and they're enjoying his, his, his company. So it's, it's really hard for me to kind of understand how he was a miss with the UFC. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I hate to sound vulgar, you know, but with the UFC, you know, you know, they like to fill spots, you know, they like, you know, a Latino, uh, you know, an African-American and this, that, you know, I think on the TV show, it shows. And then on their roster, it shows, you know, they tried to limit the amount of Brazilians and certain they don't like to have everybody all the same. They have certain spots they fill. And you can argue that, you know, Corey Anderson checks off a lot of boxes that, that John Jones does. So what's a wonder to me is why, you know, why opt for the bad version of a similar character? You know what I mean? When you could have the wholesome kind of good version of it in in, in Anderson. I, I At least from the interview, I get that. It's like he's he's very not John Jones. In terms of like that bad boy streak, I think this is this is uh, like a guy, you know, that you can leave your kids with over the weekend. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> but you know. So, so like my, my theory is, Demetrius Johnson at the time was the UFC 125 pound champion, and it was as plain as say that they did not want him there. They were very unhappy with him. Um, they traded him. Who's ever heard of that? Yeah, they traded him, and they went to great lengths to deny him just his opportunity at, at, at fighting John Jones. Like, even if you don't like the guy, he's earned his shot, just give it to him. What's the worst that could happen? One, he loses. You're okay with that. He, and he was he was an exciting fighter. I mean, he wasn't, you know, knock your socks off, but, man, the, the guy wasn't boring. And then number two, you know, if he wins, then you have to build him. Just put a little money into the guy. I mean, I mean, you're putting another guy through rehab that's got the belt around your waist, his waist. He spoke up against him, and it was his last fight. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Great. I mean, good dude, though, right? I mean, it's, it's an absolute asset to have in the gym. As, as, as a matchmaker, when I was doing it, and I guess, you know, that's the old days kind of thing, but I would look – to when I had a match, I could have a favorite guy. I could think a guy's going to win. But on the back end, on the business end, you've got to be ready for either guy to win. And if you're not, then you get these things like, oh, it's like, you know, the plans seem to be, you know, you get guys shelled for a year because you didn't know what you were going to do. That You know, none of that is good for business, I think. And I think Corey Anderson probably suffered for some of that where, they just didn't know, you know, what to do with them. They really didn't. They really didn't know what to do with them. And the the, the point would be keep them active, you know. Right. They people out eventually, and it rises to the top. He was already heading in a good direction, and you know, I see I see a guy you can work with there. So they're lost. All right, so Miguel, dude, Bernie Mullen, I don't even know who you are, buddy. You hit me with 20 bucks, said thank you for the show. I think he mentioned Eric, I shouldn't say thank you. He mentioned Eric Paulson. He enjoyed that interview. It's actually one that's continuously like in our top five in regards to 
people viewing and stuff. So it's pretty cool. I, I'm, I think we, you know, as a collective are pretty proud of that interview. Um, but man, Bernie, thanks buddy. Appreciate the 20. It's going toward the editor. Um, like, share, subscribe. Algorithms are murdering us. That's nothing new. Um, and we can't grow without your help. And dude, go to iTunes, leave a review, give us four or five stars, whoever it is you think that we deserve. Um, I know there's a new ranking system on Spotify as well. Anything that you guys can do in regards to that is helping us with the show. iTunes, Spotify. I don't use the Google app, but I'm sure there's a, a you know some sort of review you know, process there as well. And uh, that's it. We got Corey Anderson in the books. And uh, tune in next week for another great interview. <laughs> Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.